I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, the Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Good, Conrad. Good. Coming off that Big 12 championship uh, overtime win, my seniors get the distinction of playing arguably the best team in all of college football. And uh, we're, I think the, the world thinks that the seniors are glorified job guys. They're enhancement talents. <laughs> so and, you know, this spread keeps going up. And, and, and look, maybe we get our doors blown off it. The thing about this team that I love is that they're going to play hard. They're not going to be intimidated. They got a little dog in them. So uh, if Riley can get that offense rolling, they get a few breaks on the other side of the ball, you never know what's going to happen in these damn ball games, right? You never know. So you and I have both have supported our teams going into a game that they were supposed to win, and they didn't. Oh, absolutely. And, and I got to tell you, I'm a – I'm a sooner by proxy here. Jalen hurts. The former Alabama quarterback is now the stud at Oklahoma. And what a great story he's had, you know, being able to lead not one, but two teams into the playoffs. I'm pulling for it, man. I hope you guys pull off the upset. Can you imagine the story to be told after he won the was playing in the national title game of 17 to win another one with another team in another league. Unbelievable. Talk about a great story of redemption. I hope it happens. I'll be tuned in and we appreciate you guys tuning in this week and every week right here to grill and JR. I got great feedback from last week's episode. People are really digging the red ass Jim Ross that we're presenting here on grill and JR. And I'm hoping that we get some fireworks today. We're going to be covering a pretty fun topic on a bit of an anniversary. It's Armageddon 2004. Uh, so today is the exact 15 year anniversary. Of course, that show went down at the Gwinnett center in Duluth, Georgia. This is a SmackDown branded pay-per-view. So only the guys from SmackDown are on it, but I'm curious from your perspective, you know, the brand split did bring a lot of change, I guess, in theory, I understand the concept, 
We want to create our own competition, pal. Goddamn. But a brand split pay-per-view you're asking people to pay money. They're used to getting or accustomed to getting the entire roster on these pay-per-views. Now they're just getting half. Did you think it was a miss or did you have high hopes? Did you think the diehards were going to buy it either way? What'd you think? I thought that the uh, way to go was pure brand separation, no cheating, no slipping across the fence and grazing over here a while. Uh, you got to have a creative group around you that, that has the confidence in their own skills to create with what they have. Uh, and you know, when you, when you work through and grow up in a territory, you know, Watts would have, and a lot of guys, the same thing. Cause they all copied Eddie Graham by and large on numbers and things of that nature structure, uh, on how to book a territory, how to book, you know, town seven days, seven towns a week type thing. Um, so I, I thought it was the way to go. And it gave quality talents more time to develop. Uh, it put pressure on the talents that were underneath to get better and to be more productive. Uh, this TV should be easy to write because you're writing for fewer characters. So I always have believed that that was the way to go. Uh, but you're right. You make very valid points about the marketing of it. You've got to have a red hot main event that you're pretty damn sure is going to deliver. And the nice thing about uh, Armageddon in 2004 was the fact that that main event that we will be talking about here, uh, did deliver. So Jim, let's talk about where we are in the company at the time. You know, we're, we're fresh off survivor series. One of the big four pay-per-views. So of course, both raw and SmackDown are on it. You've recently told us here on the show, I guess it was several weeks now about how you got moved in a draft, uh, from raw to SmackDown that happened in 2008 here in 2004. Mm -hmm. Did you have any inclination you would ever be on SmackDown? Did you have any say over who went where, or were you just signing guys and then it was sort of out of your hands? Well, my job was to sign on the best talents that I could and put them under the WWE umbrella. Once they were under the umbrella, uh, I didn't give them away or hand them off, but you basically shared the talents with creative because that I had encouraged the talent to always try to build a positive, honest upfront relationship with your, with your creative people that are working with you. It's to your benefit to support their ideas or teach them better ideas. But the bottom line uh, is imperative that you communicate and not have a, you know, have a pissing contest on a writer because they're naive. Understand that most of the writers are going to be naive. And when they first start, how could they not be? Many of them are getting one of their first or second jobs out of college. They're young. They're, they're, uh, you know, immature, a lot of social ways. Uh, and they think wrestling sometimes is so simplistic that they should really be writing for network television because wrestling is basically a good guy versus a bad guy. They oversimplify what wrestling really is. And so I, I, I think that, uh, they, the creative got, got the talents, uh, as they needed to use them because I knew that it was always going to be vetted back to Vince. And if this, if it came to a point where Vince thought, I don't know if Austin's going to like this, or I don't know if the, I don't know that, uh, you know, this is the right thing for, for, for Sean or whatever. Well, he knew that he, he would talk to me about that because that it'd be my job more often than not to talk to the talent. Hey, look, they got this idea. Here's what they want to do. Here's a good, here's the upside. And here's the downside. But at the end of the day, it's going to take you to make it successful or not. So we can kill the idea 
and start all over, or we can uh, try to work within the basic concept of the of the creative. And more often than not, that's what happened. They just the talents needed to have someone that they could talk to more often than not, express themselves. Most of them are going to vent a little bit. Well, they can vent on me all they want because I'm I'm vent proof, and 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 unlike. Uh, People today, uh, you know, you know, you get beat up on the internet every day either. So, it was, it was no the ta- the creators took care of the talent in that regard, but I always was there to support the talent because when the talents were unhappy, who do you think they ran to? Me. So, and that was my job, and I I, I miss that part of my life to some degree, uh, even though I'm not volunteering for extra duty. Let's talk about SmackDown. We're right in the middle of the uh, JBL world title reign. What do you think is JBL as champion? Were you supportive of the choice? Yeah, because, uh, John had, a, had a great ability to piss people off and he had, he was very easy to dislike, uh, and, uh, he can really ruffle feathers when he's got his mind or his creativity set on it. So the, the thing about John, so being so insulting, uh, talking down to people, being a bully, you know, I'm bigger than you, I'm tougher than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm more handsome than you, all the things that he said and that he represented was so easy to dislike as a human being, basic social skills would not want you to endear yourself to this guy. So he, and he pulled it off perfectly. So I thought he was a really good heel. And here's the thing about for being as big as he was, because John was an athlete at Abilene Christian as a, a honored uh, offensive lineman, right tackle. I think he played, uh, he, John had athletic ability. He, he wasn't just a big guy with a big ass and, and three left feet. He, he was, he had athletic ability to move around. And so he could feed a comeback. my point. Heels that can't feed a comeback are not great heels. It, they can't be. And what a great comeback is, is very subjective. Let's leave it that as, as say that as well. So yeah, I thought John did a good job, Conrad. And, and it was what you, I think you look for more often than not, uh, in a heel. Well, read, could promo. Well, could do the media stuff. Well, uh, had a great presence you know, the coat and tie, the, sh- the suit and tie was always a nice touch. So, uh, I, I that was a good looking in my, in my eyes for John to have that role. Explain briefly for some of our listeners who may not know, because I know what you mean when you say feed a comeback, but some of our listeners may not know exactly what that means. Explain that. Like you're talking to a third grader for a minute here. All right. Uh, well, feeding a comeback is, is, uh, when the heel has built his heat, he has got his angst rolling. He's got people on their edge of their seat. He's punishing, uh, or she. The, the baby face is punishing or getting punished by the heel, uh, in, in a variety of ways where it could be a hold that'd be rare, but maybe a hold or a big bump they took or something. Um, uh, so when it's time for the battered, bruised baby face to make his or her quote unquote comeback where they are resurrected, where they come out of the ashes and they rise from the dead. Then, uh, when that moment, that flip is that switch is flipped. And now the, the baby face goes from being on the defensive transitioning into being on the offensive to make that work. The, the, uh, 
the, the villain, the protagonist has got to fly around a little bit. So he's got to feed the comeback. So whether it's taking drop kicks, what I'm saying is that the, the villain has got to be able to take a succession of flat back bumps and respond and get back up vertical so he can take another one. So beating multiple spots on a comeback is imperative more often than not to be a successful villain. And John, even as big as he was, uh, did a nice job of feeding comebacks, taking big flat back bumps and being able to get back up a seat roll or whatever it is and get back up and take another bump. So, uh, that's, that's what that, I think, I hope that clarifies a no, little bit. Absolutely. Up and down, up and down. Yep. Um, let's talk a little bit about the gimmick. This gimmick does feel a little bit like a, a throwback of sorts. And it also feels like to me as someone who doesn't really know Vince McMahon outside of a couple of meetings that this is Vince McMahon's pet project. Like Vince would have eaten this character up. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. I think, I think Vince could identify with a, with a big, powerful, well-educated, moneyed, tough guy. And, and, uh, that's what Vince envisioned himself as in real life. So it's not far fetched to let for his creativity to create that character and, and, and manifest itself in the form of this case, JVL, a very good booking. Jay, Vince felt the character. So, you know, you get a, a better than fair shake on the creative and JVL was the character. He didn't have to play a role. He didn't have to learn how to be J John Layfield did not have to learn how to be JVL. He came by it naturally. And Vince could see that and sense that. So it, the stars aligned and sometimes that happens. Uh, and it, it did there. And, and the benefit was that we got, you know, we had a, we had a, a good run where John had a good run and made a whole lot more money positioned on the top of the card than he would have been any place else. So I think JVO was a great overachiever quite, quite frankly, in some ways, I'm not trying to hurt John's feelings, He's a friend of mine, but you know, I don't think anybody ever expected him to do as well as he did. So, uh, but he, he learned and figured out I can be me and make this son of a bitch work. And he did. Let's get to some news and notes. Wade Keller would report that during a tag match in Syracuse, New York, Charlie Haas and Kenzo Suzuki would tag out. And that means hardcore Holly's in there with Renee Dupree and fairly quickly. Holly puts Renee Dupree in a front, in a front face lock. That's different from a traditional wrestling front face lock, meaning it was real throws him down, gets on top, nails him one legitimate punch after another, eventually gets a real stiff chair shot his way. Then gets the chair thrown at his head and neck. Eventually Dupree's eyes swell shut his face and body are bruising up all over the place. Holly's kicking him three or four times in the face and every which way they go to the finish. Dupree sprints to the back. Holly chases after him and allegedly Wade asked one of the WWE superstars about the incident and was told quote, Dupree has an attitude and he's a dumb shit. That's a bad combination <laughs> around Bob. So I guess the idea is these guys had been traveling buddies, not too terribly long before there was some incident that occurred. Holly was flying out of town before Dupree. Dupree needed a ride to the airport the next day. So Holly offers his rental car to Dupree. Uh, allegedly Dupree was supposed to turn the car in when it gets to the airport and he got a ticket and he didn't pay it and supposedly just threw it away. 
Of course, Holly gets the blame. It affects his insurance. It becomes a headache. Dupree won't set straight what really happened. And well, this is the result of that. I'm sure you were involved in this in some way. What did you hear? When did you hear? What do you remember about this? Uh, I don't remember a lot. It's so that long ago. I remember, uh, you know, you don't lie to Bob Holly. And, uh, you know, Bob's not going to let things go that he believes is, a, in his view, a detriment to the business. And that is the boys having each other's back. Renee, on that occasion, did not have Bob Holly's back. And then when he wouldn't fess up to it, own up to it, as the story goes, uh, it became martial law. You never want, as an administrator, to endorse martial law in your locker room. But there sometimes are occasions where you, you have to reluctantly, uh, look the other way for a few seconds. And that was one of those situations where, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't, that, that was the house show. If those guys were that Bob was disciplining a uh, Renee, but uh, you know, you, uh, you don't endorse it. Right. You don't say, well, beat your, yeah, beat your, your teammate up. You don't endorse it, but there's some old school principles that some guys brought with them from the beginnings of their, ter- their career and the, through the territories. And Bob Holly did that. He's an old school guy. He's old school today. I would suggest if you cross him today and lie to him or, or screw his life, he'll try to whip your ass and more and likely he will be successful. So that's kind of where that was, but I don't remember. I don't remember what we, what I, we might've done a fine. I'm not yeah. sure. The, the word is from Wayne Keller that Holly was fined $10,000 and told that he would be fired if it not, if it were not for his tenure with the company and Bob for better or worse, developed a reputation, at least online of being a bully backstage. Uh, but others are saying to Wade, no, Dupree had developed, you know, the label stooge because allegedly he's tattling on a lot of the locker room to management and management now doesn't trust him and sees him as a suck up and neither do the boys, you know, a lot to unpack here. Would you classify Bob as a, as a bully? A borderline. He's a tough guy. Uh, did he go around knocking your glasses off or flipping over your your table, like in the lunchroom, your tray. No, but you, you, but he could pick out a liar in a, in a, in a amongst a million people. And then he's just old school. Guy. And like I said, an old school guy. I can't, I can't, I can't defend what he's doing, but I, he's, he was never disrespectful to me one second. So how can I, you know, I'm not going to go to some rant or, or, uh, try to say, you know, beyond holier than thou. Uh, but, uh, you know, Bob's a tough guy and he didn't take a lot of bullshit, man. The job is hard and he was fighting to, you know, he's in the middle of the card. He's up, his income would go up. His income would come down. He wasn't sure he wasn't, he wasn't in the program all the time. There's a lot of uneasiness there, anxiety in that in, in, in as much. So, uh, I can understand his, and he was just a, and look, he's a crusty guy. So I don't know, man. I, I, I always liked Bob. I thought he was a, a benefit to us and. I thought that he was good to have in the locker room. Well, here's the thing about it. If you, if Bob's a, if Bob is a, is a heel, let's say, and you got a young baby face that you want to improve, that you want to get better. So on the road, I'm booking that young baby face to get better with Bob Holly. And Bob's going to beat the shit out of him. We're going to find out what's, what the guy's made of. He's not going to endanger him, 
but some of those chops are like getting hit with a belt. So, uh, but, but the guy will learn things. And then as he earns Bob's respect, things will start getting easier and he'll learn his craft better and he'll become a better hand. And thanks to Bob Holly. So there's a lot of, I, I got, I got all the time in the world for Bob Holly. I, I don't, again, I can't in a clear mind endorse what he does or what he's done. And certainly he whipped, he went overboard with Renee. He'd already proved his point probably six, four or five times, but, uh, you can't have that. When it gets to that level, you got to step in big time. And in the, I think Bob had not been such a loyal, hardworking son of a gun that we would have had no choice ADOs and thank God it didn't happen. Let's talk a little bit about Rene Dupree. You know, it's written here in the dirt sheets that he's earned the tag as a suck up to management and, and, and the, the term, a lot of times in wrestling is stooge. What say you, do those terms apply to Rene Dupree in your opinion? Well, he was very close to Pat Patterson calls the French Canadian thing. Uh, so the connection there of countrymen, so to speak. So, uh, and Pat was kind of a mentor to me. So, and of course, Pat, not like any other old timer, like myself, uh, likes to sample the dirt occasionally. So, uh, Pat, no different. If Renee had dirt, I'm sure Pat got, got drift of it at some point in time, or at least the perception was that was what was going on. And it may not have been, it may have been, you know, is your old rumor and innuendo thing going on? I don't know, but Pat and Renee were very close. They talked French to each other. You know, it's just, it was just a, they got along. So what? And, uh, some of the guys saw the fraternization of a talent with an agent as being unhealthy, especially in that relationship. Cause Renee was young and developing had not paid all of his dues yet, you know, but we all knew that Renee had a great upside that you can't knock Renee for being a bad worker, right? He was not a bad worker. He was a good worker, but I think he might've made a mistake there with his, uh, uh, you know, he's almost like joining at the hip with Pat at the TVs. And, uh, I played a bad joke on him one time at television. I, Pat was on one side of the arena. And I was, and, and Renee was, I think he was visiting or something. He, I, don't, I don't think he was working for us at that time. If he was, he, maybe he was, I'm not sure. I don't think he was. Anyway, he's in the arena on a TV day. Middle of the afternoon, I told one of the security guys, you see that guy over there? Yeah, pointing at Renee. I said, he's got to go outside. And, and so they ran over and got him, right? <laughs> Grab him. Two guys grabbed him by the arms. Now he's up, he's all the way across the room from Pat. And all you could hear was Pat. <laughs> and whatever Patterson was doing, he dropped it right in the middle of it and uh, ran off to go intervene, right? So he got there. Patterson, you know, he could get real animated, talk with his hands and stuff. And uh, he, he was, he was uh, giving, giving the uh, security guys hell because. Uh, they were taking out Renee out of the building. And I said, I told the guy, I said, look, if anybody asks you, who could give you this order, unless it's Vince McMahon, it's none of their business. You with me? Yes, sir. Okay. So that was what happened. But Pat was very protective of the guy. And, uh, so that was, and that 
that didn't do Renee a great deal of favors, but he can't, nobody could say, well, I didn't like him because his, his work in the ring was the shits. Right. It, that, that would not be accurate. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Well, I mean, listen, it's, it's unfortunate because fair or not fair, whenever people talk about Renee Dupree, they bring up Pat Patterson and, you know, the business being what it is, people are going to make certain assumptions and, you know, they're just like they did with, with you and the cowboy, because they knew you guys were friends. You got painted mm-hmm. with the ugly stick sometimes, and that's yep. not necessarily fair. No, but uh, it's life. Right. Part of the journey we're all on this crazy ass world we're in and. I, I, I'm blessed every day, man, to wake up just to goddamn wake up. I feel good. So, well, cause I look, I look around and everybody I wish was waking, awakening with me. Is not there? So you, you get very thankful that I got another day. So that's a good thing for me. Uh, let's keep it moving. Let's talk about Vince McMahon. He's in a good mood here because it comes out that he is, uh, going to re- start receiving a per share bonus. Here's what's written. With Vince McMahon being the majority stockholder, he will now receive 5.7 million of dividends each quarter, no matter how well or poorly business is doing since it's a per share bonus. In essence, it means he will profit greatly. Even if stock, the stock price drops 50 or even 90%, um, they still have 266 and a half million in cash and short-term investments, which represents a strong cash reserve. And is what likely justifies the increase in dividends paid out mainly to McMahon since the dividends of 20 plus million paid to McMahon this year, won't make a big enough chunk out of cash reserves to make that a weak point in WWE's overall financial state. This is just fascinating to me that it's structured in such a way where, Hey, whether we're doing good or doing bad, you're getting paid based on how many you got. And since you decided how many you got, uh, here's $20 million. How awesome is that? It is amazing. And (laughs) it shows you how the system can be manipulated. It shows you that the guys that are making this big money are the guys more than likely behind and in influencing, uh, the laws and what, what, what can be, what are, what are legal transactions or what isn't. I find it, I find it absolutely amazing that they, they play with real money too. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's like a, let's lay up. Once you do this, uh, at that, like they did, you know, that's, that's not, that's not a week to, that's not, that's an annual deal. Now, I think you can change it. So I guess you could change it. You could raise it or you could lower it, I suppose. Well, yeah, he's getting, in this year, 2004, he's getting $5.7 million a quarter just from this. That's over and above a salary or whatever. It's just incredible. But, you know, you've, you've obviously had WWE stock before. In the last 
year or so, they had an all time high, I think around 96 bucks. I think yep. right now it's trading around 63 or $62. Uh, where do you think this stock really belongs? I mean, I know you don't really play don't. The, the stock like that, but I'm curious your take. Damn man. I don't, I don't, I, I am embarrassed to tell you that when I got my stock options, uh, and I got them in, I got them multiple times, but I got the first award, uh, of stock, uh, and I remember Ed Kaufman coming into my office and saying, congratulations, how's it feel to be a millionaire? And I thought he was screwing with me. I said, you know, Ed, what the fuck are you talking about? Millionaire, my ass. I don't know what this shit means. And that was probably the most truthful thing I said all day. I, I don't know what this shit means. So he sat down, uh, Ed did, and uh, with his Stanford law degree, and he uh, patiently walked me through the process. So then I saw, I didn't know what vesting meant, right? You got to be a member before you, the, you get the rewards Remember, so long. There's a time frame. So, okay, I'll, I can do that one. And, and so I started learning more about it and, and, and not paying more attention to what the stock prices were and then doing math in my head. Okay, I got to do this or you know, whatever. But, uh, I got, you know, Vince is very generous for many, many, for many years, the grants that Kevin Dunn got, I got the same. And Vince took great care of the both of us for his talent guy and his TV guy. And, uh, so then in time by not panicking and just holding on to my stock, uh, at the end of the day, when everything was vested, uh, I, I, I had several million dollars in the bank, thanks to Vince's generosity and, and the WWE stock. So, you know, it's a, it was, it was, I, it, look, I didn't, I was so naive about that stuff. My dad didn't have any stock. Right. He, he had livestock. He had pigs, he had hogs, he had cattle, you know, chickens. We had stock. It was livestock. So I didn't know the rules, man. We didn't, I wasn't raised that way. So I, I have, I was raised poor. So I don't, I don't know what all that shit meant. I didn't study in college. I didn't want to, I didn't even like business classes. I didn't know what I wanted to do other than chase the sorority girls and smoke weed. Both are pretty decent options, quite frankly, but <laughs> it, the, neither one of those gigs pay well. What year do you think it was when, when, uh, he came in and said, how does it feel to be a millionaire? What year was it? Well, that'd have been 2000, 2001. Yeah. Two yeah. Right in that neighborhood. Yeah. It was right after the, right, right after we went public. I think at the next round of meetings, the next board thing, or I was on the executive committee. So I don't know how often we met once a month or every, you know, I don't remember. There's two, a lot of meetings folks. Uh, but it was the higher ups and I used to laugh about those meetings. Then I go to Vince's office, but make fun of everybody. <laughs> oh shit. We're evil. Hey, so, uh, let's keep it moving here, but before we move on, I do want to you know, ask about, uh, the way this stock was sort of hovering at the time, because this is uh, very much an era where, you know, television rights still exist, but they're not where they are right now. You know, you still got pay-per-view revenue in a very traditional way. And another revenue stream is DVDs and the rise and fall of ECW on DVD did tremendous business. Uh, when did you first start to think, Oh shit. Well, if this is selling that well, it's only a matter of time before Vince wants to do something with it. Well, the ECW brand. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Vince is really smart about utilizing measurables. Measurables. I'm trying to say, folks, my bell's palsy. Uh, as many have noticed on Twitter, I do have some uh, little speech impediments thanks to three bouts of facial paralysis, but I will continue to try to uh, do the best I can. I'm being a real dick right now because I'm a nice guy. Uh, hey, anytime you can, got, you got documentable proof something works as a promoter, you owe it to your brand and you owe it to yourself to try it again. Try something along those lines again. You've got some good market research. People have paid for it out of their own pocket. So the ECW brand, uh, you know, was had a, this cult following and everybody thought it's like buying the last Bible, you know, it's, it's the, they, this sank, this is, you know, very, uh, uh, religious ground to a lot of hardcore wrestling fans that breathed and embraced ECW, you know, Heyman and his crew, his team did a great job of exploiting the us against the world philosophy to encourage an atmosphere where the audience would tightly embrace the brand. And they did that. They just have, they just didn't have enough people embracing, uh, at the end of the day, but, but they did a great job of the ones that stayed with them, loved them. And they still do. So, uh, but I, I, once we saw that there was a, there was still a, a bloom on the rose, albeit a small rose, or maybe it's kind of, uh, among all the, the bushes and a thistle, there's a rose here somewhere. And if we can pick the rose, that means money for the company. So that, that's kind of the, the idea. Uh, I think we're all kind of pleasantly surprised at that, that loyal audience of ECW. We didn't, we knew the audience was loyal. That was not a surprise. The volume of loyalty, how many people were loyal was what surprised us. Well, what surprised a lot of people reading the torch was that Paul Heyman has been removed from the SmackDown creative team. He would write with all the recent talk about Heyman's creative triumph with ECW and the influence he has on the industry as a result. One thing often overlooked is what a mess his career was before ECW. Heyman could not last in any corporate group situation predating running the show in ECW. He had numerous fallouts with management in WCW. Before that, he didn't get along with Vern Gagne in the AWA. And since the demise of ECW, whenever Heyman has been put in a position of influence within WWE, he has drawn criticism within WWE, even from his supporters, as someone who is just too stubborn to do what is necessary. Uh, to last within a set structure last week's decision to move him off of the SmackDown creative team was said to be the result of Heyman quote, playing mind games and quote, getting caught in a lie. Others say Heyman creates jealousy among others and power because he speaks up about what doesn't make sense, exposes the lack of wrestling knowledge of others in power and ends up creating a situation where in order to save face, his incompetent political opponents end up drawing attention to Heyman's faults in an effort to remove him for their own domain. So I don't know if there's ever been a more, just based on what Bruce has said, this is on the money, uh, as far as an assessment of Heyman knows more than most of these other folks about wrestling, but just can't help himself and sort of out politics himself. And Bruce has used the phrase die on a hill that he would find several, several issues that he would say, this is a hill I want to die on, or is this really a hill worth dying on? What do you remember about Heyman being removed here? And, and, and what can you say about Wade's classification here of Heyman's demeanor? Uh, pretty accurate regarding Paul's demeanor at that time in his life. 
uh, I remember, I bet you the first time he heard down the hill, uh, was a conversation he and I had where he came to my office after a creative meeting, he had pitched some, pitched some ideas to vent to Vince and, uh, one in particular involving, uh, Guido, uh, and we hired Guido. He came in, he wrestled for us. He was a referee for us. Great guy, great guy. And, uh, so, uh, he came in all pissed off because one of his big ideas didn't get, didn't, didn't like it and just blew it out of the water. I said, what was it? He said, well, I had a little Guido. And I said, I said, well, hold, hold, hold. You, you, you pitched an idea, a top idea to the old man involving Guido. Yeah. I said, you're dying on the wrong hill. You should know Vince is never going to allow that to happen. If it happens organically and, and he sees that little Guido is starting to get over, then he'll run. It'll be his idea. But until then, you ain't got a, you, you, you got a chance. I said, you're dying on the wrong hill, Paul. Paul's issues have always, Paul has not played well with others over the years. You know, uh, I remember when I put him on as my broadcast partner in WCW, I almost got a standing ovation from the booking committee because now they didn't have to deal with him and because the same thing was there. He was smarter than most of the, in the, in the creative process, but that was not the structure and that was not his role. He would oftentimes ignore structure whatever it may be, or the lack thereof, and, uh, his role just to, to assert himself. And look, he's a, he's a genius in so many areas. You know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a big Paul Heyman fan, big time. When, uh, Lawler, Lawler left, uh, and Paul became my partner seamlessly, uh, all the demands of what we had to sell and push and mention on Monday night raw. Uh, and to our show that was packed, uh, we, we, we didn't miss a beat. And, uh, so he's amazing. He's a hall of fame guy, but sometimes to be honest with you, his immaturity, uh, didn't do him any favors. Sometimes his, uh, uh, you know, the word I'm looking for, he's, uh, oh, I don't know. I'm trying to thank Conrad that he's. He's in, he, he can be indignant. He can get frustrated with people's stupidity because he is so much smarter than a lot of people in a lot of ways. Right. But his community, but his skill set of his communication skill set in that era wasn't anything to be coveted. He's gotten better over the years. Obviously he's older. He's got, he's got teenage children and you know, he's, he's maturing. And look, there's nothing wrong with maturing at a later age than is expected in our society. I'm 67. I know, I know sure as hell. I, ain't, I there's some areas of my life that I have not matured yet. And, but I'm enjoying life. So, you know, what, what I'm going to do, that's Paul. He just, his life's getting better and it's getting more balanced, more stability, but he's always going to have some of those issues. I'll promise you that he'll always have an issue where he sees something so clearly, so big picture wise, so detail oriented that sometimes the common guy doesn't have that vision or the ability to have that vision. So that's why he's very special, great, great creative vision. And he, it's it just, uh, a special gift that those great bookers have 
uh, where they can really uh, visualize a scene in their head or an angle that they want to shoot. And Paul's one of those guys. Let's talk about sort of the backstory to this thing. Um, I don't know why this is amusing to me, but it is Wade killer would report a few weeks after this. It's become clear that Stephanie McMahon was primarily responsible for Paul Heyman being pulled for the SmackDown writing team with encouragement from Brian Gerwitz, who is considered a model subordinate to the McMahons. Brian, Brian Gerwitz. Yeah. My apology. I, it's a rib that I always pronounce his name wrong and I've teared, carried it over oh. to the wrong show. Uh, damn you, damn you, Conrad. <laughs> Tap me up here. Uh, are you surprised or do you remember that this was uh, a Stephanie decision? I'm not surprised, but I, I wasn't, I, I could probably pass a quiz on it before we started talking about it. Uh, I know that she had a, had a lot of, uh, uh, philosophical differences and, and, uh, I'm sure that Paul got close to the edge on how far to take the argument before he backed away. Cause he just was hell bent on getting his way. Uh, he was very defiant. Not that she wasn't, but she, she had the right last name. He didn't. And that's how it is. Well, I never heard so, Yeah, you know, folks, you have heard of such a thing. It happens. It's happened a zillion times in our, in the world. They own the goddamn company, figure it out. It's not public, public trust. So anyway, uh, uh, they didn't, they didn't get along and, and, uh, to any major degree, but I never under, I never really fully, she never came to me and said, nor did she have to, or she maybe need to, but we, she and I never had a discussion about Paul being a pain in the ass, even though I knew she felt that way. We never talked about it or the, other than maybe the occasional eye roll or her head shake or something like that. But to have an open discussion about Paul and his good points and his bad points, we never had. So therefore I never thought it was, it escalated to that level that we're talking about here now, but maybe it did, you know, I don't know, but, uh, Vince liked Paul's creativity and the fact that Paul kept Vince alert and, uh, on, 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 on his toes. Cause he, you never knew what Heyman was going to say or when he was going to say it or what great idea he was going to have next. Uh, Wade would also write McMahon actually put Heyman on the SmackDown writing team against Stephanie's wishes and Heyman backer say she was just looking for an excuse to remove him from the writing team because he was exposing her hires as incompetence who didn't even have a basic working knowledge of the pro wrestling industry and what has and hasn't worked over the years. Quote, it could have been something as petty as Heyman expressing on the ECW DVD that he was disappointed that Hunter beat Taz on raw. The egos of Steph and triple H are so fragile and they take themselves so seriously. Everyone has to walk on eggshells around the princess and her hubby. That's a quote that someone within the company gave Wade Keller. Uh, Obviously I know you would probably disagree with that, but I do want you to sort of address the, um, the assertion that Stephanie had hired quote, incompetence who didn't even have a basic working knowledge of the pro wrestling industry. Well, there are some of those and the proof of that folks is not my biased opinion of Jared's knocking the company that I was with for over a quarter of a century. Uh, look at the, let's go back and do the research on, on who, who was, who were in those roles and how many people since 2004 have been on the writing teams. My God, that's enough information for you, your honor. 
to convict if that's what you choose to do, if you're, if you're filing charges. So yeah, there's a lot of turnover in creative. That means that a lot of people were, were hired under the assumption that they would be successful, but they were not. And that was not a secret and it happened all the time. That because that because of Stephanie McMahon more so than anyone else though, in your opinion. Well, if she was making the final final on it, yeah, it's her fault. Well, if she wasn't, but, but who would have been? But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I, there's been Conrad. There's been so many structures there. This guy, this is in charge of this, and this is in charge of that. And Stephanie Hunter in that time in 2004, they were both acclimating to newly acquired and always building power. It's a big transition. And they were adjusting their lives, personal lives and their professional lives on their new responsibilities and ever growing person, uh, responsibilities in WWE. So, uh, and sometimes you make mistakes. Nobody's flawless. I can promise you, especially myself. But uh, I think that there was a personality conflict there with Stephanie and Paul that may have been able, that may have been able to be addressed and solved if they both were willing to come to the table and have a free, honest conversation. I'm not aware that that ever happened and maybe it did, but I, it wasn't, it wasn't a landmark news within the confines of, of our office at that time. Do you think the, uh, the quote is fair that the egos of Steph and triple H are fragile and talent have to be on eggshells. I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, validity to that without a doubt. Yes. But also, as I said earlier, they were young in their new roles. They were young in Camelot. They just got there and, and the roles that they were being required and they were assuming and that they were, and that they were taking over kept getting more and more and until the current day situation as we know it is today. So, uh, I, I think they're just getting, I don't think they were in, in their rhythm, their game yet, but yeah, that was, it was, a. I can see people saying that I, I, I know people that they were very insecure about their jobs, uh, that felt that way. I never felt that way because I always felt I did my job. Well, uh, I helped, I signed Hunter to his first million dollar a year deal. Uh, you know, I got along basically okay with Stephanie, but you know, I'm, I'm sure I know that I wasn't her cup of tea. Uh, I didn't sound, I didn't sound big. The big brand, the big face, the big voice of WWE had to be something other than good old JR. And so, and that's their, that's their call. So, uh, you know, you just move on and go play for another team. Like I am now the AEW. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, let's talk about uh, somebody who's trying to get on the team. Uh, tough enough is going on here. And uh, Mike Mazanin is keeping a weekly online journal of his experiences on MikeTheMiz.com. And uh, he's uh, he's saying that being the first in the contest uh, sucks ass. And he explains uh, you know, how everyone's faring. And um, he says the last person to go was Pewter. Did anyone see the uh, Bashams by this time? They just took down four people and were out of breath and tired as hell. Pewter goes and almost got the flag, but didn't. The Bashams did a great job of holding us back, and it looks like Pewter did the best, but the fact was he went on last. I honestly think whoever went on last would have done best in that competition. Pewter got the luck of the draw, but that game was fun as hell. So this is an interesting thing because... You know, in this era, it's really the first time that you guys have done tough enough on a big scale like this and where someone who had a little bit of reality fame is leveraging that to sort of speak to the audience. This is before social media is what it is now. Would anybody have encouraged or discouraged him from doing this? I mean, on the one hand, it feels like, well, that's why you hired the guy. He had a little reality buzz. But on the other hand, it feels like what we know about WWE at times is, well, if it's not our idea or we didn't approve it, you shouldn't do it. Uh, don't think it was the latter because we're in a, an unknown territory as far as the online stuff was concerned, not really knowing what was there and, uh, and obviously not knowing what it would evolve to like it is today. Uh, but no, I don't think I had any problem with it whatsoever. It's just got more mentions. It got, it reached the message, the sales message, uh, the tune in message reached more viewers or, or more folks, hopefully. So no issues there, you know, just. It always showed that Miz is a Miz, a great self-promoter, uh, really a self-promoter. And if you're not a great self-promoter, uh, in the structure of today's pro wrestling landscape to where you're not employees, you're independent contractors. So as long as you are an independent contractor, you damn sure better master the skill set of being a self-promoter because if it ain't you promoting you, then who is right? And that means internally with ideas that means, uh, getting representation and looking outside your little, your envelope. Uh, I, I really predict that as time goes on, we're going to see a lot more wrestlers, uh, get, uh, bona fide agents, Conrad. And because let's face it, uh, these kids like for WWE, for example, a lot of those guys are making well north of seven figures. And they all know in, in the back of their mind, based on what they've been ingrained in their, in their mind, that they're probably, they may not be actually earning it, but they're getting paid that. So I'm in a good, I'm at the right place at the right time, this big money and, and God more power to them. God bless them, make some more, save some more. And so I, I think that, uh, I just, I think that, uh, the, you're going to see more guys getting agents and, and getting out there and doing more things because they have, they have name identity. They have facial identity. Most of them are photogenic. Uh, and the, it gives them some uh, mailbox money. There'll be more mailbox money runs with this era of pro wrestlers than any other group that I could recall in my career. Let's talk about somebody who didn't get a lot of mailbox money. It's, uh, 
the first tough enough winner, Maven, he's on bite this around this time, which is the WWE's audio show. This is pre podcast being what it is now. And in the interview, he says he never dreamed that being in WWE would take as much work and commitment as it has, but he's so happy to be with the company and on the road with them. And he says, you know, even though he's wrestling, he's still a huge fan and it's a delight to work with the a caliber talent. Maven, of course, as we know, didn't make it. Um, why don't you think Maven was, uh, long for the WWE natural charisma. He had a great personality sit and chat with him, talk to him. I'm sure whatever he's doing is he's, he's dealing with people or selling something. He's successful. Uh, I just didn't think he had, there was something missing in the bridge from him to the audience that connected the two just wasn't there for me. But as far as being a, a decent kid, well-mannered, well-spoken, absolutely hundred percent, but it's the, it factor may have been, he had a good look, but all of packaged together, just didn't translate for me. Uh, and, uh, apparently not with enough fans and most importantly with Vince, because, you know, uh, maybe end up uh, leaving our, our employee. The rumor in innuendo is these days he's, uh, working with the Brooklyn nets, probably some sort of an account rep or something like that. Cool. Well, he. He's a people person, right? He's very, like I said, he's very well-spoken. He's intelligent, articulate. Uh, it's, it, but because you don't have the it factor in wrestling, it's not a sin. There's a lot of people that are getting paid a lot of money right now that don't have the it factor in wrestling and somehow or another are making a bunch of cash. Let's talk about Wade Keller's report about Ric Flair being in Iraq. He would report that Rick was the center of attention on this trip to Iraq. When you guys visited the troops to the point that. He was treated like royalty. Even some of the soldiers were giving him the medals that they had earned in battle and he's signing everything and including allegedly bombs and he's given autographs and, uh, supposedly. So, so nothing's changed from today. Yeah. He signs, it signs anything. He'll sign anything. I don't know why, but it tickled me. The report he signed bombs. That's yeah. just uh, unbelievable to me. Uh, how big of, you know, we just passed the, uh, the, the tribute for the troop show with WWE. How big of a, uh, of a deal was this to Vince McMahon to put this type of show on every year? Huge is a huge deal. I think it was JBL's idea originally that Vince borrowed and ran with, uh, which is, you know, he, he, JBL could not make it happen. Vince could. So all worked out, uh, Vince took a very vested and emotional interest in this project. Of all the negative things that, uh, people have said about Vince and some are meritous and some aren't just like all of us, uh, no one can ever question his patriotic, uh, feelings and, and his patriotism. So uh, he made all those trips. Vince was over there going over there like a crazy guy, like as a young kid, but, uh, I never got to make that trip. Uh, that was my, probably one of my biggest regrets. Uh, in my WWE run was not being booked and quite frankly, space was always limited. Uh, and you know, it was a payday for some of the talents and I, it was just another long trip. I didn't have to go on. So, but in looking back at it, in hindsight, I really wish I'd have booked myself or leveraged myself on one of those trips. If I could have, it's a great honor. And I don't know that anybody that's gone over there. Uh, other ambition about the food or something like that, something materialistic, but the thought and the emotion, the passion and the good feelings that they created for these people 
these soldiers, these men and women away from home, defending their, our country, uh, is amazing. And everybody's, it touches everybody's heart. And I think there's, we should try to create more opportunities in our life that can touch our hearts. And this was certainly one of those. Let's talk about your, your friend, Jerry Lawler, believe it or not, he's the target of a, uh, what's called a corrupt police burglary in Memphis. The FBI arrested three police officers for laundering drug money. And I can't believe this is real ferrying prostitutes to Tunica casinos. And supposedly they were planning a burglary for Jerry Lawler. There's a local radio show in Memphis at the time, the wake up crew, and they were taking calls on the subject and a contractor called into the show and said that he had once installed hardwood floors in Jerry's home. And he had been paid a large sum of cash from a safe that was inside Lawler's jukebox in his home. And the report was that there were $200,000 worth of cash right inside this safe inside the jukebox. Of course, Lawler would refute that. And probably for a few reasons, uh, either way though, this is going to change the way Lawler handles some home security. But when you see your boy in the news for allegedly having damn near a quarter million dollars in cash in a jukebox, is this something you guys talk about? Oh yeah. I, I, I bust his balls on that deal. See, the story is, is that he was between relationships and, uh, King doesn't do well when he's not in a relationship and that's not a knock. It's just the way it is. He doesn't like to be alone. I can, I can identify with that. So, uh, he was between relationships and he met this, uh, dancer, uh, from a gentleman's club there in Memphis, as I understand it, uh, the King brought her to his house to entertain her. And I guess, uh, he felt the need to show her his stash. Okay. And where it was. And then, then all of a sudden this plan started hatching on, I know a guy who's out of town a lot. He's got a lot of money in a, in a safe inside the jukebox type deal. And so that's when the plan all got hatched, uh, to, as I understand that situation. So the little, uh, the little blonde lady, uh, set, you know, it didn't set Jerry up, but she, she cased the joint, come up with an idea, talked to her policeman friends and, uh, the, the plot was on. It's just unbelievable. Uh, here's a pro tip. If you have cash at your house in a safe, that's a good thing. That's a bad thing. If you tell anybody, <laughs> yeah, no lie, man. I can't, believe well, I don't, I don't look, I'd have a hard time. Would I completely ruled out the fact that he had 200 G's in his safe and uh, no, but I think the likelihood of it being a lot less than that is, is more probable than not. But nonetheless, the, the, uh, the lady saw what in her view, a lot of money and, and stacks of money or whatever. And then she had to share that with her, you know, her sleazy friends. And that's Jerry's just, you know, there he's lucky that it wasn't one of those impulsive things. And they were, they robbed him while he was there. Cause you, you just gotta believe that that would not have been a, a happy ending. You were joking about it, you know, tongue and cheek shit here, but you know, it, it, he could have been killed. Uh, yeah. I mean, people have been killed for a lot less in that scenario. And 
you know, when you think about how long Jerry had been in the wrestling business and how for better or worse, a lot of wrestling promoters, even in 2019 still pay in cash. And a lot of the boys still want to be paid in cash. It's not totally out of the realm of possibility that it was there, but I'm glad he's got that sorted out and, uh, there won't be any shenanigans like that in the Lawler household anymore. No, no, that's those days are gone. Let's talk about your boy, Steve Austin. Uh, he he's, he's doing an interview here, uh, at tcpalm.com and he's giving his opinion on the WWE product. He says, I don't want to get too critical of the product because everybody knows I'm pretty opinionated when it comes to that. I'm just going to say there's a lot of opportunities for guys to step up, take the football and run with it. Vince has handed the ball to lots of guys, but you got to break from the pack and be willing to go out and make the most of the opportunity. I don't know. I mean, what do you think when you hear a guy like Steve Austin say that? Because I think a lot of talent who hear that today would say, well, that's easier said than done. The, 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 the system that Steve Austin was able to do that in doesn't exist anymore. What say you? A lame ass excuse. Really lame. Uh, in my view, the, if you're great, greatness cannot be overlooked. And maybe if you're, you believe you're great and you're not getting your quote unquote push that all the, all the guys that, that, that are on the outside of the business like to pick up all the little, uh, terminologies, the push, I get that all here for all time. Hey, GR, when's so get their push? God damn. Anyhow, uh, uh, what were we talking about? Uh, the, uh. You know, Sorry, whether the, or not Austin. Oh yeah. 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 Austin. Uh, he's right. He's on the money. Take ownership, become that entrepreneur, become that, be that self promoter, have an endless array of ideas. Watch the, watch everybody on your show and what they do and, and role play that. If I was a screenwriter, AKA a booker, how could I put my character into the show? Instead of showing up and wondering where catering is, God damn, what's wrong with people sometimes? So yeah, be, be aggressive and have viable ideas. And, and by gosh, here's the other thing. It doesn't hurt. If you got a, you got the ear of, the, of a creative person to give them an idea about something else other than you. So, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of what a truth, what Steve had to say there about earning your way and getting established and, you know, but goddamn man, you know, come with something, just don't show up. Uh, like Ernie Laddie said about the junkyard dog. He said, dog, you show up like a cabbage, all head, no rear end. Meaning the dog coming on TV, just want to do a promo and not wrestle because he was getting lazy. A cabbage, all head, no rear end. <laughs> Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk about, uh, Billy Gunn. He's released in mid November. He'd been with the company for a long time, going back to the smoking guns and on commentary during his matches, especially when he was in singles, you would call him the best pure athlete in the WWF. You know, we've mentioned he's a big part of DX. Of course, he wins King of the ring in 1999, but it feels like that all sort of dies when the rock beats him at SummerSlam 99. He never really made it to the main event. Do you think he reached his full potential with you guys? And if not, why not? I think he did. I think he plateaued. And unless we could get a, a, a hot injection of creativity, uh, in Billy's, uh, benefit to his benefit, 
uh, we were kind of after kind of re regroup It's the restart button. And, uh, unfortunately, Billy, the, the creator just couldn't find the next role. You know, we got very lucky that we went, he went from being a big smiling cowboy to, uh, a member of DX, the DX. I was talking to him about this last week in, uh, uh, in, uh, Illinois, at the university of Illinois, we shared a locker room. Uh, I, and I said, man, that uh, DX was the best thing ever happened in your career. He made, he, he made seven figures for us way back in those days. Uh, all those guys made big money and he earned it. He won the road. He got, you know, he got a payoff. He earned his payoff. We're working house shows, live events. So I, I, I think he, I think he kind of plateaued unless somebody would have had a grandiose idea that would have taken him to another place with, uh, another group of opponents. Let's, um, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about WWE 24 seven. It's just recently been launched. It's only in like 30 different systems nationally. WWE at this point is still negotiating with the major couple cable companies that aren't carrying it, but this is really the precursor for the WWE network. What did you think of WWE 24 seven, which is really an on-demand channel. The first time you guys have tried something like this, did you think loved it was the future or maybe just a fad? No, I loved it. I thought it was, if we could somehow get a clear cut direction on how the online streaming, uh, all that business is going to evolve and develop, but there was a little, there was a lot of, uh, dialogue regarding that matter. And some schools of thought were it's going to be what it is now. And some says, well, it's already, it's peaked, you know, so in other words, don't invest in these stocks or invest in these stocks based on which are the, those two philosophies that you take. But I, I loved it. I thought after I was convinced that this is the way of the world, everybody's got cable. You hardly see any TV antennas. Everything's either wireless or, you know, whatever, you know, uh, I got to say, I, I got direct TV, for example. So I don't go out and turn the antenna anymore. I got more channels than I can ever dream of watching. And, uh, but I don't, I, I do it for my chair. So all that stuff evolved right place, right time. Vince and I used to talk about all the time, how a lot of these shows, uh, the old territories shows, the tapes are still in containers. They had, they had aired once, once think about that. They aired one time. Okay. Maybe two and the tapes are in good shape. And they're 30, 20, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years old, whatever it is. I said, there's a network there. There's the, the wrestling fans will embrace that content like they do the history channel. And we, I, I, I remember one conversation we had, and of course I had no idea what I was talking about. And I still don't that goddamn Vince, if they got a weather channel, why not have a wrestling channel? And of course you get corrected. We'll be a WWE channel, JR. Okay. Sure. Whatever. But, but seriously, it was a no brainer, uh, because the material that you're going to repurpose Conrad was essentially new. What's fascinating about that to me is I, I think on the surface, I would tend to agree with you, but then I hear, and again, this is all rumor and innuendo and who knows what, what to believe anymore. Cause they don't release this information, but I hear that, you know, the network really is uh, as far as what people are watching, it's all the new stuff. There's very little interest in going back and watching the archives. And as crazy as that sounds to me, like I've got some friends who only watch Jim Crockett promotions. 
And you know, they're just like, well, there's nothing for me to watch. Even though all that old JC, not all, but a lot of that old JCP stuff is up there. It just Mm -hmm. feels like because it's so readily available and because it's there, it's not new anymore. And therefore people aren't consuming it as much as maybe you and I originally thought they would. Maybe, you know, that's valid ideas. No doubt about it. The thing about it is, is that you have a network that can cater to a variety of fan bases. Right who also have the common denominator of being a pro wrestling fan and pro wrestling takes many shapes and forms as we know, uh, and different flavors of ice cream. So I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the taste change, but having a place like WWE network now where you can go and access almost anything of the, of the grappling kind is a pretty goddamn good idea. And, uh, I'm sure they got hundreds of hours of stuff that they haven't even processed yet. Oh yeah. I'm sure of that too. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about something they did process. We're going to start seeing the vignettes from Muhammad Hassan air and Wade would write informs and sources insist that McMahon originally booked, uh, Davari and Hassan with an open mind as to whether they'd be portrayed as bitter heels or sympathetic baby faces. Quote, if you notice in the first two vignettes, one in the studio and one on the street with the kids, there was no heel or face direction for the character. They just pleaded their case and said how they felt. And of course, the next two that are shot show them as full-fledged heels. Um, the idea for the gimmick was originally pitched by Michael Hayes at a creative meeting who was given the idea by Davari himself. So far, there have been no problems with fans taking the gimmick seriously outside of the arena but there's obviously great care being taken to not go too far as far as inciting fan reaction to the gimmick, considering these still intense feelings about nine 11, we know eventually they're going to cancel this character. Maybe not the, maybe not the best idea, but do you remember that being the case with Muhammad Hassan? They wanted to, let's not make him clear cut baby face or heel. Just, just let him plead his case. I think at the end of the, at the beginning of the day, we would like to have had, uh, to have broken the mold and created a character of his descent, wink, wink, uh, as a baby face to try to, to not have that stereotypical image. I believed that we weren't there yet in our journey. I did not base my opinion on nine 11 at all, which may have been a big mistake. I don't know. I thought he was a pro wrestling villain and that people knew that pro wrestling villains were fictitious. And that, uh, if it gave the audience a reason to respond and jeers, then cool. Or if they wanted to cheer this dude because he's outspoken and, and you know, all that stuff, then fine too. I just wanted an ass every 18 inches. And I knew that we needed heels because Conrad, uh, I knew that, uh, Muhammad Hassan and Avari had the ability to feed a comeback. Now we all know what a feed a comeback is now, right? Yes, we do. Think about those guys, flat back up, flat back up. They could bounce around like a rubber ball. So they had the basic qualities of being sneaky and they look good. Uh, I thought this kid was, had a big upside, uh, Muhammad Mark. And, uh, but you know, it just, things didn't go his way. You know, he was, they were very nervous. They did a little angle with Lawler me, uh, where he slapped my ad lived a slap in my face that drove my headset into my temple and I started bleeding. Uh, so, uh, he didn't mean to, 
but that's how nervous he was. All right. So let's talk about triple H he's uh, in a movie called blade Trinity and the McMahons are openly acknowledging that triple H is the son-in-law of Vince McMahon during the publicity events for the movie. Uh, in fact, triple H, Stephanie, Vince, and Linda, I guess everybody, but Shane are at the Canadian pre- premiere of the movie, uh, coach and Trish Stratus also there. Uh, what do you think of triple H trying to uh, put his toe in the water and maybe follow the rock's footsteps to become a movie star? Well, it was smart, you know, uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So, you know, I think he kind of envisioned himself as a, you know, a Schwarzenegger light, you know, action star, that whole same as rock did, you know, rock, the same basic thing, uh, in the scorpion King, you know, they're shirtless and they showing the body, no nine yards. So I think uh, Hunter probably thought the same thing, and I would, if I had been his representative, and or you'd ask him about, I'd give, I would encourage him to do exactly that. Why not try it? Why not try it? And you, at least you know if you like the process, if you're good at the process, whatever. Uh, but again, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So that's kind of how I looked at that deal. Okay, Jim, let's talk about something a little more controversial. Uh, at raw on Monday, this is directly from the torch Foley and flair were together for the first time since flair's book was published with disparaging remarks about Foley. Since then Foley had insulted flair during a long promo at a ring of honor event. And a lot of people within the company were curious how the two would coexist at raw. Once everyone found out Foley was scheduled to be there. Flair approached Foley backstage late in the afternoon and offered a handshake. Foley said he wasn't interested in shaking flair's hand but did make a gesture and signing a copy of his book to him. So he could auction an off for charity and flair wasn't pleased with Foley's demeanor and then threw a punch at Foley, which landed, but didn't do any damage and nothing more came of it. There was some speculation that flair and Foley staged the incident in order to add some heat to what is assumed will be a singles match between the two at WrestleMania. There are others who believe that the incident seemed entirely real and fit with both personalities of the wrestlers. Quote, both came off as childish, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And Flair had written about Foley in his book. I don't care how many thumbtacks Big Foley has fallen on, how many ladders he's fallen off of, how many continents he supposedly bled on. He'll always be known as a glorified stuntman. I think this happened here in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, allegedly, this was the talk of the locker room that day. And Foley was never really probably one of the problem children, but I imagine you've had a lot of conversations with Rick over the years about things that you wish he might do a little differently. What do you remember about this incident in particular? I think it happened in catering. I think it happened in the catering room. And, uh, I was in there when it happened, but it happened so quickly that if you weren't looking right at it, uh, you, you missed everything. Unfortunately, I was either had my back turned. But, but the bottom line, I was not looking at it because I did not perceive that the issue between Rick and Mick was that serious, to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know that, uh, if the, that the promos weren't building to a match, I, I, have, I would have no idea. And it could have happened in a variety of shapes and forms, I suppose. So I didn't take it seriously, to be honest with you. And then there was a punch. It, it was a, a, I did see the punch. The punch was very awkward because you're looking at Rick doing these great precision working punches. And this punch was totally non flare like 
So that means he either was, he, he, it was a, it was a shoot punch or it was a, just a very poorly worked punch. I think there was one blow struck. There was no blood that I can recall. There was nobody knocked down. There was no kicking and stomping. It was easily broken up and the guys were more than uh, accommodating and breaking it up. In other words, Rick and, uh, and, uh, and Mick didn't do the obligatory pull apart where they pull away from all the guys holding them back and go leap at each other. That didn't happen. That spot did not happen. So, uh, and then, you know, you talked to both guys, I talked to both guys after, and uh, you know, I got, you know, we can't do this here. This bullshit. You can't do this here. It's, it's childish. And so we can't have it. Right. Are you with me? You got to get my back on this deal. So both of them agreed. No more, nothing more from them on this matter. So, and they didn't have any more issues that I'm aware of. So it just was, it was embarrassing for two guys that I've, two hall of fame guys, two legends of the business, letting a promo and a, what somebody wrote, uh, in a, in a book, uh, you know, influence their behavior to something unlike that they would normally do at all. So, yeah, I remember that. I, I didn't know it was, I couldn't remember the Conrad that was going to be in Huntsville. Like AEW is going to be in Huntsville soon coming up too. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's big news, man. Yeah, it is. Tickets are on sale tomorrow. AEW is going to be here on February 5th. Well, let's talk about, uh, the real showdown was happening at SmackDown taping, believe it or not with Chavo Guerrero and big show Wayne Taylor would write just about anyone within a hundred yards heard it because it was a very loud argument. Details are sketchy of how exactly it started, but Chavo snapped at show about smaller wrestlers and bigger wrestlers, perhaps into reaction from a comment made by big show. Uh, he ended up calling show fat and lazy and show took the bait and threw Chavo across the dressing room. Agents and wrestlers broke it up quickly and nothing more happened between the wrestlers that night, but still, uh, what's up with Chavo here popping off to big show. That doesn't seem advisable. Well, probably it was accumulation of things. If my, if I had to rebuild this case, uh, your honor, I would suggest that perhaps, uh, we would find a scenario where. Big Show had been busting Chavo's balls because he knew that he could uh, over a few days. It probably started out as a very lighthearted, tongue-in-cheek, satirical uh, riff, and that it matriculated, as Hank Stram would say, matriculated down the field into a uh, shoot. And and Chavo is a man's man. He's not going to back away, even though he, he knows he's on the short end of the stick, no pun intended. And, uh, so he stood up for his own honor and, and, and they did their thing and it was over quickly. Thank God. Nobody got hurt. You know, just look guys travel. It's hard to explain this sometimes to people. We don't know what day that was. It was, it was at the end of a 10 day run or the beginning of a 10 day run. Did he, did either one of these guys have an issue with their wives before they left home or they are either one of them hurting and they're working because they, they had, they don't feel that they have the job security to stay home. There's a, a lot of things that go into the mindset of these cats. And so, you know, you never know on that deal. So I'm just guessing that it was a cumulative effect that Chavo had heard enough. And, uh, you know, I've heard enough. I can't stand it anymore. So that's where you we were. I'm guessing. Let's, uh, let's talk about where we are now with Vince McMahon. He's actually doing a rare interview here with Esquire magazine. 
And here's some quotes uh, from that interview. He says, giving it to the audience is probably the easiest thing. Finding out what they truly want is probably the most difficult. The worst sound in our business is silence. That means they don't care. What do you think of that? You know, the, the silence means they don't care. It's a little old school, but it's very simplistic and, and still probably rings true in 2019. Absolutely accurate. Absolutely accurate. You don't, uh, silence is not golden in the world of pro wrestling. And I'm, I'm I know what Vince is getting at. I agree with him hundred percent. You've got the audience cannot silently emotionally invest unless a ball's in play at a tennis match or on a swing at a golf course. We don't have those interludes in our business to any large degree. There's nothing established. And now because, uh, there's probably more high spots per capita for wrestling matches. And now I would venture to say there's probably per capita per match, more high spots, more big time flying than has ever been uh, accumulated in wrestling before everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it from various skill levels. Unfortunately for some, it looks horrible. They hurt themselves. They embarrass the business by doing some shit that just makes no sense. And it's like cows on ice, big old fat goddamn people like me trying to look uh, like you're a figure skater, like I'm Johnny Weir or somebody. See there folks. I am very well read. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 uh, uh, I don't know where we were, but I'm, I'm, I'm digging it. The other thing that Vince has quoted here is saying is, uh, the most ridiculous idea. Someone suggested hiring hunchbacks. <laughs> the reasoning was they could never lose a match with their shoulders could never be pinned. Yeah. Of course, that's a Jim Hurd idea. Yeah. It sucked then and it sucked again. <laughs> Thank God that didn't happen. He, uh, it's a, part, he, it's a joke. He said, a card said, I said, I'll never forget that meeting Conrad. He says, well, I got it figured out. You can't beat these son of a bitches. And I said, of course, I'm just sitting there, right? Well, how about a submission? Oh, God damn it. You son of a bitch. You killed the deal. You <laughs> killed my gimmick. <laughs> I killed your gimmick. I, would you want your name attached to this piece of shit? Oh God. So he also writes, I don't think anybody could have beaten Andre the giant as prime. He was just so quick, notwithstanding his unbelievable size, strength, and intellect. I don't think, uh, you know, and maybe I'm reading this wrong, but every time I see or hear Vince talk about Andre, the giant, he talks about him in a way, unlike he refers to any other wrestler, whether it's Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair or buddy Rogers or Bruno, Mm -hmm. he has such, uh, respect for Andre. It just comes across immensely. You know why? You know why? Right. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to hear size. Vince is a size freak. Size is size is his world, man. You know, we've, uh, Andre was a freak of nature. His hand size, the, what's that? The, the, the giant disease. Uh, uh, so he, he's got, he had his features are changing. He was a size guy, huge fingers. Probably a size 20 ring or something. And, and Vince was always amazed because that's what he got from his dad. The, the, you know, the, the size was a coveted, uh, asset for a pro wrestler to have, whether it be Ed Stringer, Lewis barrel chest, or, uh, you know, uh, NFL hall of famer, Bronco Nagurski's being six, two or six, three, 
which was a big guy at that time. So, uh, yeah, it was, that was the deal. Size. He liked the size. Size is easy to pick out. I, I, he and I are sitting in airports back before we got on the plane, the, the private plane, in a waiting area to board. And he'd say to me, JR, you seen any stars yet? And what he meant by that was, did I see anybody that turned my head walking in the airport? Uh, and, you know, Watts used to do that. Watts used to see guys. He saw a guy one time in the airport had big thighs and he wanted to know how much the guy squatted. Nowadays it gets you for, you know, being a molester or something, but he, he said, that's how you meet people. Right. I said, you know, the guy's got a unique look. We looked at him. You and I both stared at some bitch. So he said, that's what you got to look for. So this is the same deal. Did anybody turn your head today? And if they did, did you get their name? Did you find out, did you see if they had any interest in what we do? You know, well, they would be interested in having a set down, coming to the office, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, it's old school, a lot of old school principles there that I really believe in today, quite frankly. Something else that's quoted here. Um, <laughs> steroids work. When I took steroids back in my forties, I could feel a tremendous difference. Should they be banned? Yeah. Now, clearly we're, I'm sure he's referencing the. Uh, steroid conversation was, was at a peak and a fever here in 2004. Uh, but that's usually through legitimate sports. I never got your take on this. Do you think that steroids should be banned in professional wrestling? Hell no, absolutely not. Uh, I believe that, uh, talents, all talents should get ongoing, uh, medical exams. And I, in other words, they're the, the, the things that are important to know, uh, more regular blood work than normal, perhaps, but certainly, you know, every week our guys should be checked. I think they are checked most every week, but our guys at AEW should be checked every Wednesday, blood pressure, uh, all that good stuff. This what you can do. Simple, just check some balance and, and keep a record of it. Any vacillation or change, you should be noted. It should be noted. So I, I, uh, uh, but I don't believe the steroids is a, it's a, look, it's a performance art. It's not the NFL. And I'm not so sure that it makes a shit of even the NFL. It's an old, it's like saying it's, it's, a, it has the same negative baggage that marijuana has. It has not been accepted widely in mass appeal or wise. It has not been accepted widely enough, uh, to, to, to get that. Okay. It's all right. And now the, the marijuana issues are becoming that way because states are saying that legalized marijuana, that they're, uh, and look, there's a lot of issues that come with it. I get it, folks. I get it. But the bottom line is what Stone Cold would say, there's a lot of money going to the bottom line in these state coffers that need the money for school books and things of that nature. And as long as that money's being put to good use for the children and educating our people, for one thing, and health care, things of that nature, then hell yeah, take, let's, let's create the new money, the new revenue. But it's just the steroid thing is back then he, I think he had to, he was forced to say, I sure it's got, I sure it's got, got to be because that was a, that was public sentiment. I don't know that. I think the public sentiment on the anti-steroid, uh, issues have lessened in the last few years. I think by and large Conrad, that people are tired of hearing about that shit. The yeah. world has so much more going on going than to worry about who's taking the sauce or who's not. 
So I, I, there's a lot of ways that you could still uh, that that can work, and I just I just don't believe it's an issue. Uh, that's that's just me, and I know I'm in the, I know folks I'm in the minority. I also know that it helps people recover. It gives them energy. You know, hey, look, I'm a big believer uh, at my age of the uh, testosterone implant. And I've had a testosterone implant every five months uh, done for uh, since oh, the summer of 2017. And I've never felt better because I have more memory. I, my body's now creating more testosterone. So for those cats that have to that take another way to help that matter, uh, more power to them. We deserve to have a good quality of life because our tomorrows are never guaranteed. And as long as what you're doing is under doctor's care and legal, don't let anybody else tell you that they're, they're, you're making a mistake. It's your body in that regard. Uh, let's talk about Vince and the XFL. He, uh, he has a quote here and then we'll move on to the show, but he says, what I learned from the XFL experience is to be smarter the next time I take on the NFL. And this is back in 2004, Jim, and, and here the XFL comes again. Did you think, you know, way back in 04 that he was crazy enough to do this again? Or did you just assume this is just Vince being Vince? No, I, I had no doubt in my mind that at some point in the future, he was going to saddle up that horse one more time because he believed in the concept. And when he, when he wrote a check for 50 mil or wherever it was, uh, the first time around, and when he and CBS lost all that money, uh, I, I had the first meeting in the company with Vince after that happened, the most anticipated meeting of the day for my peers, because they had meetings with Vince coming up and they didn't know how to approach it. And I, and I, and so he and I talked about it for like five minutes and he was nonplussed what a poker face. Uh, and I think he was being sincere, but he said, you know, JR, I took a calculated risk that I w- that I would and will, and will take again. Now I didn't know when he said he will take it again and then on the football, uh, or something else in the calculated, you know, we, what we're doing is calculated risk Sure. in pr- the promotion business. Right. So, uh, but yeah, he, 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 he was on uh, he, he was unfazed. I could not have been, I'm not that strong a dude, man. And he was unfazed and, uh, we went on and he closed the book on the deal. And, and so it's like, okay, what do you got book for? So-and-so what, what, what's the main event in LA on Sunday or whatever the case may be, what are you going to do with this match? I like the booking, but I don't know what the finish is going to be type deal. We were right back to business. So, uh, but I, he, he believes when he believes in a concept, almost it can be perceived by some Conrad as a detriment, but when he believes in something so strongly that come hell or high water, he's going to make it happen. Uh, whether it's good, whether it kills him or not is, uh, that's Vince. So and I knew he believed in the spring football and, and the fact that they have got great TV partners, they have, t- you know, they've taken two years or more to get ready for this launch. Whereas the last time we did it. We did it in about 90 days and, and the football was hideous. And we, tr- then we tried to jack around the game, the basic rules of football, football fans. Listen to this football fans want to watch fucking football, not some bullshit burlesque show where the coaches and the, and the announcers are arguing with each other, which never drew a dime anyway. 
uh, where we're showing more shots of the bosoms of the cheerleaders and the palm squad than anything else. That's not football. So you got to come up with another name because what you're selling as football is not football. I think this go around, it will be a football presentation. My friend, Bob Stoops is coaching in the Dallas franchise. He's serious about winning football games. And I think all those guys, Connor, I think the deal is the one thing they left in there, I believe is the incentive money. If you win, you get more, more money. God damn. What a great idea. huh? And I, I and I'm telling you, I, I'm not so sure that doesn't apply to the coaches as well. Why wouldn't it? So there's a little bit of money on the line here. And I, I think it's a good idea to come back with it. I hope they make great success, but I knew he believed in the concept. And when he totally is committed and believes in a concept or a talent, he'll go as far as he humanly possibly can to see it either happens or it just can't make it. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. Let's uh let's talk about the show. We're finally here. Armageddon 2004. Michael Cole and Taz, your commentators. Of course, uh, Michael Cole is WWE royalty at this point. He's been with the company forever and a day. You know, I talked about him a while ago, but I don't think we've touched on it since he's done a couple of shots with you guys. Taz is the other commentator for SmackDown. And uh, Taz, who still has a uh, syndicated morning show uh, in the morning in uh, New York and I think it's all over the country at this point with intercom. He's, uh, at least flirted with the idea of doing commentary and wrestling again. What do you think? Is there a, is there a spot for Taz in 2020 in, in professional wrestling? Uh, yes, there is. But first of all, regarding this show, did you listen to the opening, the Jim Morrison thing? what do you think? I loved it. It freaked me out. I forgot about that. So if you go back and watch this event, uh, it's from 2004, uh, the fifth Armageddon, by the way, I would suggest you listen to the show open and it is so creative. It fits the mood and the moment. And was that Jim Morrison singing? I don't think so. It, it, if not, it was somebody that's a, a, a sound alike, right? It was really effective my bottom of the point of that deal. But, uh, so anyhow, yeah, Taz, Taz is a, Taz has got excellent skills. Him being on radio, uh, has helped him become a better broadcaster. Uh, broadcasting radio is, I think was going to, is, can help him translate into, 
uh, a, another successful run as a TV broadcaster. What he's, what he needs to find is a home. Right. Uh, it's, he, he had, <clears throat> pardon me. Taz has the skills to contribute to any broadcast, anybody's, but he's got to be welcome to a home. Uh, and you know, I hope that happens for him because I still think that he's an old time guy that loves the business. And I think he'd be a good coach, uh, a, a good, you know, play it forward a little bit. He can be a character on a the show. There's a lot of roles he can f- portray. You know, I'd love, hey, well, I'd love to see him in AEW. Quite frankly, how do you think he but, did? I know he, he did a couple shots with you guys. He did fine. He, they liked his work. They loved, they liked his work. But the thing, like I said, <clears throat> for a little team like we have, sometimes one has to wear more than one hat. Right. And the good thing about Taz is that he can fulfill that that mandate. He can help set matches up. He can help coach. He can help you know psychology wise of matches. Uh, like a, like an agent type deal producer. And we call them coaches. Uh, he could be a character. He could be somebody's manager. He could be a, he could be a rock. There's a lot of things Taz can do. Yeah. Taz is a manager. That's fine. <laughs> do, do you, but, I mean, what would that look like? I don't think I've ever imagined Taz as a manager. It, it all, it's all about presentation. And you went to him and said, here's what we want to do. We want to make you a manager. Look at the roster circle. Somebody you think you want to manage somebody you think you have chemistry with because you assume that no matter who Taz picks out, now you should have a short list of guys you wanted to, to pick from, uh, but the, f- the former LAX were well, part of the inner circle. They're from, uh, that, that would be a good pairing. I mean, I know they're part of the inner circle. We're just fantasy booking, but. Just off the top of my head, that would fit their characters. I think I love the chemistry of Conan and, uh, those two kids, right? When they were LAX loved it. I love those two kids. Now I promise you I'm partial to them. They're, they're, they're trying to break molds and destroy, uh, stereotypes of who they are and what they are and what they can be. And, you know, my, my, my mess, message to them is don't ever let anybody determine how high you can go. That's always up to you guys. And I really believe that I, I I'm, I, I'm a talent, I'm a talent friendly manager, but I got to tell you that there's a lot of talents today that feel entitled and that they are in their comfort zone because they're some of them in some companies are making so much money that they've lost their, the, the eye of the tiger. Hence they do the same moves, move sets, same cadence, same, everything. This seems to be, I saw this last week type stuff and you got to change. So, uh, but yeah, Taz could do a lot of things. He's a talented guy. And he, you know, Hey, look, there's no, also don't discount the fact that if he, if he was involved in any degree in the creative branch that he could not contribute there as well. Yeah. So he could wear a lot of hats is my point. And, uh, uh, you know, and I like, he's a friend you know, I enjoy being around him. Uh, you know, we were partners for a while there on SmackDown and, uh, so that was an adventure cause he really, he had, he was, had been worn thin on how he's being produced and it just, it, it came to a, I mean, he was, he was, had had enough and, uh, and then of course I, he's driving the car. So now I'm riding with a. Uh, 
a very uh, irate, angry man who's uh, gripping the steering wheel like he's going to kill it at 10 and 2 with his arms stiff. He, he, was a, he was a classic guy. I, I like being around him. So guys like that, that paid dues, have overcome the odds, who made, became a big star and a lot of money at 5, 8, or 9, I got time for those guys. Can you share how you made it? Can you continue to sell this message that nobody should be able to put restrictions on you and they, they're not going to here. So you can't use that as an excuse. So I think he could help us. And, uh, but nonetheless, someday that may happen. Hell, I don't have a clue, but you know, and I, and look, I don't know also how much time he's willing. Is he willing to devote to something, uh, as time intrusive as reestablishing his wrestling career? I don't know those things. Right. So, you know, but he's a good man and he could help anybody. Well, let's talk about, uh, oh, by the way, I, I checked it out. That song at the open is a Jim Johnston song. The end is near or the end is here rather. Wow. Um, let's, let me tell you something. That don't sound like Jim Morrison adores. Yeah. I'll kiss your big old dimpled ass. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> speaking of kissing ass, Renee Dupree's in this opening match with Ken, uh, Kenzo Suzuki, and they're going to be, uh, uh, challenging Rob Van Dam and Ray Mysterio. Of course, RVD and Mysterio are victorious. They get a lot of time here. 17 minutes, 11 seconds. Uh, Mysterio and Van Dam retain their tag titles. And uh, Wade would say the best match you could possibly expect from Dupree and Kenzo. RVD and Mysterio did a nice job carrying them to a solid opener, if not a bit formula at times. So he liked it. What'd you think? Uh, good opener. Thanks to Ray and, and RVD. That's why the match was longer than it was. So both guys have a better opportunity to get some of their signature maneuvers and, uh, uh, moves in general in. So, uh, that's why the match went 17 minutes. No other reason, uh, because, uh, they're, they're the pro the antagonist did not deserve the 17 minutes at, at, at that point in the run. I got to tell you, I've always, um, really preferred the way a traditional tag team was presented as opposed to two single stars that just made a tag team. So even though Rob Van Dam and, and Ray Mysterio are phenomenal performers and no one would ever debate that I didn't really take them all that seriously as a tag team. I just felt like this is something they ran out of ideas for. Let me, uh, here's the thing. You're more right on the ladder. Sometimes you go through a card, you book what's hot, what you're, you need and must book what's hot off television. That's your first criteria. Don't make new shit up that has no television background and no television foundation. Don't book that. There's gotta be a story or if not, just pick everybody's name out of a hat for shoot, uh, and have a pay-per-view that way. That'd be really intelligent. And it might be brilliant. Who knows? But nonetheless, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 those guys, when they book the card, when Vince approved the card, it, it may not have had RVD and Ray on it. Right. Upon further review, thank you, Ed Hockley. Uh, I would suggest that it was revisited. And RVD and Ray were put into a tag to get them a payday and get them on the show. And then Suzuki and 
Dupree were the or the uh, the, the victims of that scenario. But that's uh, this match is all about Ray and Rob. No doubt about it. And and let's talk about um, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Kenzo Suzuki. We talked earlier about Dupree. Uh, where did you land on Kenzo? It doesn't feel like he was long for this world here. No, he was in an era that, uh, not quite as, uh, creative, uh, or broad scoped and create creativity as they are now. Uh, I was watching uh, raw a couple of weeks ago and I think it was raw and, uh, Oscar and, uh, Kyrie had a promo at ringside. It was the best promo of the entire night. And I did not understand one word they said. That's now that's happening now. And I applaud it because the passion, the emotion, the body English, it, it was, it was a piece of art, wrestling, grappling art. So bravo to those two ladies. Uh, but I, I, I but back in that day, if you didn't speak some English or have a manager that spoke English more specifically, and you had to be a heel, if you were, didn't speak English, it was so pigeonholed. And so archaic that, uh, I don't think that, uh, Suzuki had a, ch- had a chance in hell to get over and he didn't. That's a shame too. Very talented performer. Uh, let's keep it going. Let's talk about Daniel Pewter. He's got a soundbite that's going to air promoting his boxing match against the Miz. And then Kurt Angle says he's having a very special Kurt Angle invitational. He invites the challenger into the ring. Of course, it's a guy dressed as Santa Claus. Uh, he complains that when he gets home from the road, his daughter spends all her time writing Santa notes. And he said he gives real heroes like himself a bad name. So he bought the pay-per-view for his daughter so she could watch him teach Santa a lesson. And when Santa comes out, he gives him a few suplexes, makes him tap out to an ankle lock. And, uh, of course the wig fell off early and Michael Cole says, talk about a Scrooge. You know, the segment is what it is, but it did feel more like a TV segment than a pay-per-view. What say you? Uh, you got Kurt another booking, got him on a show. Uh, it was Santa Claus themed. There's a lot of reasons to justify it. Was it good television? No. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next match. Daniel Pewter. He's awarded a decision victory over Mike Mazanin in a three round boxing match. The decision was left up to the crowd. Who's going to cheer slightly. I guess for Pewter more than Miz. Uh, but Wade would say it was far more an even fight than anyone expected. Uh, of course, Pewter was the heavy favorite coming into this since he has an MMA fighting experience and background there. Uh, but he's more into wrestling and submissions, not necessarily stand up fighting. Right. Um, but Miz is, you know, he's a reality TV show. He doesn't have any real fighting experience at all, but it turns out that he hid the fact that he boxed in high school. So this is a lot closer than people expected. Uh, what'd you think of this one? I thought it was a, uh, a tough man contest, uh, back in the old days when, uh, they had the tough man, uh, uh tournaments or make their rounds and the terror, like an old territory type deal. I, I kind of reminded me of that because it was 60 seconds of wild slugging and punching, hoping to connect. There was no skill uh, that I saw or watching it back that, uh, resonated with me. It just wild punches, just looking for the home to the kill shot. And, but it was, at least you knew there was action involved in it better than, uh, Kurt beating Santa Claus. 
We should mention WWE goes all out here trying to make this match official. They actually got uh, a boxing license with the Georgia state athletic commission. Um, they had a boxing official in the match, a cut man at ringside, a commissioner at ringside. <laughs> they wanted everything on the up and up, which I guess feels like a bit of a departure. You know, you, you would think in wrestling, we're going to work everything that proves to not be the case here. Were you surprised by that? No, just like being bold like that, because no matter how it, the outcome, uh, whatever the outcome was, uh, it was going to be okay. But these guys, these guys are both just getting their career started. Uh, they had success on tough enough, you know, of course, Peter, because he was more, uh, you know, the, the amateur background and all that stuff was a little bit more uh, coveted, but, uh, Mike was always the most charismatic and the best self promoter. Again, going back to that self promoter thing, Mike knew how to get Mike over and get Mike in a spotlight where he could do well on the things that he could do well. And you can see that today, you know, he's, he's evolved his wrestling style. My only issue with Mike has ever been that I didn't perceive at times that he was a real tough guy. And I was wrong because subsequently he's had matches where he has exhibited toughness, aggression, over the top aggression. And as long as he can continue to do that on key moments for the, the viewership is the most, uh, he's going to continue to build his following. But Mike is so smooth and he doesn't look like a badass. Uh, but he's, so he's got to take me there and only he can do that with his aggression. And, but, uh, so there's no, there's no reason to worry about who won over. So let's let them go. And you have all the, the variables in place on the outside to make sure people are safe and, and it's judged properly. Let's, um, let's talk about the, uh, the decision to have pewter. Well, I guess it's not really a decision you guys make pewter wins the fan voting and wins the tough enough contract. Of course, in hindsight, we know that the Miz would have been a better choice or even Ryan Reeves, who was in this one, who's going to go on to beat Ryback. Mm-hmm. Why don't you think, you know, pewter was the hit that Ryback and Miz were he had it. He had it. He had animal magnetism. He had a great athletic body. He had, a, he had a, an accepted look within the profession. Uh, Daniel Pewter uh, had a look that uh, people had accepted as good. I thought he had a little John Cena physique type thing going on. And Cena, of course, became a, you know, became a huge star, still is. Well, the blonde hair in MMA background in 04 probably reminded a lot of people of Tito Ortiz, who was the hottest star uh, for the UFC. This, of course, is... Uh, around the same time that Chuck Liddell is going to become a megastar, but the UFC was largely built on Randy Couture and Tito Ortiz and Chuck mm-hmm. Liddell. And that's all in this era. But my question specifically was, why don't you think pewter was a hit the way Miz oh, and Ryback were? Uh, oh, he, he had the, he, op- he had enough charisma to open the door. He didn't have enough charisma to sit down and stay a while. In other words, uh, Daniel had great first impression uh, uh, markability, but he just never got comfortable in the art of storytelling that is necessary to execute a, a memorable pro wrestling match. It just, just didn't, his aptitude was lacking. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not indicating he was lazy or 
any of those, you know, uh, dirt sheet bullshit. He was, uh, he just didn't have the aptitude, uh, to get to the next level. And, it, but as far as the look, his eight by 10 got into the, would get you to the next level. But when he put the thing in reality and he ring the bell, he just had a hard time assimilating a great match. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about uh, Eddie Guerrero and Booker T. We see them discussing strategy for the main event. Undertaker's going to stare him down and walk away. And then we get the Bashams taking on Charlie Haas and Hardcore Holly. They go just under seven minutes. It's a late addition to the show. Uh, Don Marie is going to argue with Jackie at ringside, and Haas has to go deal with that. And a distracted Holly is rolled up for a sloppy pin. Of course, Holly chews out Haas afterwards for being more worried about the women than the match. It's a one-star deal. It feels like it's just sort of there for me. I don't know when we'll talk about Charlie Haas again. Uh, what do you want? What do you remember about Charlie Haas? And what do you think of this match? Good kid. I signed Charlie and his brother, uh, Russ to WWE contracts back in the day. You know, they were two kids that had a great college education. Uh, they had, and they were D one wrestlers. And, uh, ironically they were, they were Oklahoma boys. Uh, so I, I was really happy to, to help facilitate an opportunity for, for both of them. And they, they, they made the rounds They were in OVW and, and just for very, very athletic, very fundamentally sound, great balance. Uh, they were reliable, uh, all the things you look for that reliability, man, comes back to that reliability again. And, and with Charlie and Russ, uh, we, they were two very reliable, educated. Uh, young men, they started a project. They finished it. It's called college education. We knew they could finish the project that they started. So, uh, and unfortunately Russ died suddenly and, uh, a heartbreaking situation, young, so young. And then, uh, and Charlie, you know, I think that really affected Charlie's spirit for the wrestling business. And he got married to Jackie Gata and they have children and you know, he got more of a stable life and he's home and he's, he can be a, a real dad instead of a part-time dad that most wrestlers are. And don't think that doesn't weigh heavily on their soul and their hearts. Folks, you look at a, a guy that is a wrestler. He's on the road all the time. If you do the Wikipedia thing, you find out he's married and he's got children. He's got guilt and they can't help it. And there's nothing we can do about it other than make them richer. So they can retire earlier and go home before their kids are grown. To be clear, you're not saying they have guilt because they're doing anything outside of their marriage. They have guilt because they're not no, home. They're not home. Right. They have, they have guilt because they're not taking, they're not driving their kids to school. They're not there to pick their kids up from school. They're missing a game or two here and there because they're on the road. No, it's not the guilt of the philandering and the, which some do, but nonetheless, that's na human nature. I guess. Not a good side of it, but yeah, man, they, 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 they just, they get guilty because they're missing shit. And now it's even more challenging because you can get videos. And so mom can take the kids at bats at the little league game or whatever. You see what you're missing. It's a lot more challenging than it was. Well, well, Johnny had a nice game today. I think he got two hits. So you know that kind of deal. Now you got video. So now you can really invest your emotions and wrap those around what you're seeing here that you're missing because you're on the road, but this is the life. It's like, uh, Tony Soprano told Chrissy, this is the life you chose. 
And brother, is that nothing as far as wrestling has ever been said that's more true. You briefly mentioned Russ Haas. Uh, he passed away very, very early in life. He's only 27 years old. There's been lots of rumor and innuendo about his death. Uh, he died December 15th, 2001 of heart failure. He was found dead by his wife. And, um, I don't know anything you want to share about Russ Haas. Great kid, man. A lot of passion, a lot of drive really wanted to live the dream. I think the Haas brothers would have been very happy to be the, the modern day equivalent of the Briscoes. Yeah. Jack and Jerry, but and I'm not knocking the other Briscoes in, in ring of honor at all. They're a hell of a team. I like those guys, by the way, uh, good guys, but the Oklahoma contingent of Jack and Jerry and Charlie and Russ. And because the Briscoes had a great legacy here in amateur wrestling and in, uh, the pros, as we all know. And the thing about the, that is that the, uh, the Charlie and his brother, Russ were outstanding amateur wrestlers. They won all kinds of medals and tournaments and championships. I mean, since they're in grade school, it wasn't so that this, you know, Johnny come lately, they've been doing it for, you know, for years and years and years. So, uh, I think that was a, a big thing for them. And, and, uh, but you know, Russ, I, we never had a minute of trouble out of Russ, you know, as I understand, he passed away of a, uh, uh, undiagnosed heart condition. No, that's not, I don't, I didn't mean to insinuate that there was a drug issue there at all. And I'm sorry if anybody took it that way. That's just the way it was discovered. And I mean, you know, who knows in wrestling so much as make believe, I don't even want to say on the show, but I'll, I'll tell you off air. It's just a silly thing that has grown as time has gone on. And, and oh yeah. Yeah. Something hey, else. Look, all I can say, Conrad, and one of my philosophies on life, you've heard me say on the show, I largely treat others as they treat me. Uh, Russ Haas treated me with respect and was polite and professional and appreciated me being a small part of his life. And for that, I was blessed to know him, but at no time at any point was he or Charlie really ever an issue. They were young guys on the road doing the same thing that other young guys on the road were doing. There are normal dudes. And, uh, sometimes when we think we're normal dudes, we're still making decisions that in hindsight might not have been 2020, but nonetheless, uh, Russ and Charlie were credits to our business and I, I could see great things in them. Don't think that when I signed them that I didn't think of Jack and Jerry Briscoe, man, could it be, could we get lucky enough? we got these amateur wrestlers who love pro wrestling their entire life. And they become star, become pros and become stars like Jack and Jerry, man, how lucky could we be? So, and unfortunately for, as we know, we discussed, it just could not and did not materialize. Next up on the show, a mock West side story skit would air, which featured a few dozen wig wearing WWE wrestlers squaring off in the street and singing about the Royal rumble. And then Vince McMahon woke up in a cold sweat and he said, that's not the type of Royal rumble I had in mind. This is tremendous. Well done stuff here. Yeah. Uh, I, I like it. I don't know that you would have. What'd you think of this? Oh, I liked it. I, I thought it was very creative. And that's another reason to watch this show back. 
so far we have the open. We love the open and we're, we're recommending you watch, uh, this, uh, this vignette very, very well done. Uh, uh, and expensive to produce. It wasn't like they're thrown together on a green screen. So it was good. Uh, I, I liked it. So probably, you, once you see it, you may say, I can't believe JR liked that because right. he's just an old bastard that's cranky and, and hideous and he doesn't like anything. I don't think, uh, listen, cranky and old bastard. I think people, you, I don't think people say you're hideous. You gotta, you gotta stop beating up on yourself. Okay. I'm not hideous. goddamn you people, but you are a cranky bastard. I am. I am a cranky bastard. It gives me character. Thank you so much. <laughs> the next match is for the U S title. This is an interesting one. It's John Cena defending against Jesus. The feud started on October 7th, but Cena was interrupted by the debut in Carlito. Carlito says he wants a U.S. title shot, which Cena agreed to. And later that night, Cena loses the title to Carlito after being hit with his signature chain. On the October 14th episode, the GM would announce that Cena had been involved in an after-hours bar fight playa. Teddy Long says that Cena had been stabbed in the kidney by Carlito's bodyguard. Oh, not the kidney, for God's sake. Not the Dunkin' Donuts. The Dinkin' Dots. The feed restarts at Survivor Series when Cena returns from the injury. And on the November 18th episode of SmackDown, Cena says he wants revenge on Carlito and his U.S. title back. And uh, Cena defeats Carlito to regain the title, who had, in the meantime, suffered a legitimate shoulder injury. But after the match, Jesus attacks Cena in the injured kidney, which forced Cena to be stretchered out. So now Jesus, who's not injured, is going to wrestle John Cena. Who he stabbed in the kidney Ugh. and Carlito cool will be seconding. Jesus. Now they only get, they only get, they get seven minutes, 51 seconds. Uh, Wade would say Cena was super intense from the start to the end. It was a basic standup brawl that helped disguise that Cena wasn't in ring shape due to movie shooting. And Jesus was nursing a couple injuries. It worked out well, given the circumstances, Jesus bled thanks to Nick Patrick blading him. What? And Cena used the trash can lid sign plus a chain. And then, uh, Cena wins with the FU clean. So a star in three quarters, uh, this stabbing, uh, is this the first stabbing in the hit? Not the first stabbing in wrestling. We know that, but is this the first stabbing in WWE history? Regretfully? I think so. There may have been other ridiculous things, but. You know, things like that are just so outlandish. These are the things when you tell your buddies, you watched wrestling last night. So what, what'd you like? Well, they had this one thing where this guy got stabbed in the kidneys. Then, then that's when you get the eye rolling. The more you can perpetuate eye rolling, the worse we are doing to our business. Eye rolling ain't great. And it's like, takes you out of the moment. It makes you want to distance yourself from the product. You roll your eyes. Why would you want to be associated and embrace and support something that you're embarrassed to talk about? And you roll your eyes on it makes no goddamn sense. None. So the eye rolling stuff is, is just total bullshit. And, and, and we, and some of this stuff was that way. And that was one of those deals that cleared customs, so to speak, and got approved for creative when it could, there could have been a zillion other things. That didn't involve a goddamn stabbing. I know this sounds silly, but hear me out. Allegedly, maybe because Paul Heyman was heading up creative around this time with SmackDown. When this whole stabbing idea is discussed, 
the rumor and innuendo online is that one of the names considered to stab John Cena was former ECW talent, new Jack. Did you ever hear that new Jack was a candidate to stab John Cena? No, I did not. Uh, I did not, uh, interesting characterization, interesting, uh, oversimplifying or stereotyping a role. But I didn't hear ever hear that discussion. Well, in Frank. fairness, okay, here, the deal is how to get past stabbing. You, 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 you shut my ass down on on thinking about this stuff when you say stabbing. Wait a minute, stabbing. Yeah, but wait, you don't know who's going to be who's doing the stabbing and who the stabber and who the stabby. I don't want to know who the stabber and the stabby is. You dumbass. It's eye rolling shit. It gives our business a bad reputation. We don't need to help it. We've already got a goddamn black eye because we're, we're wrestling. Do you get it? Let's legitimize it as best we can so that you are more readily, uh, willing to suspend your disbelief. God damn, man. Oh man. I can't understand some of that logic. So but anyway, uh, just so I'm clear, cause you haven't, stat, you haven't uh, really made it. Yeah, I need to know your stance on this. I'm not really. I mean, are you for stabbings in wrestling? Or no, I'm not for stabbings. Okay. God damn it, Conrad. Okay. No, I wasn't sure. No, uh, <laughs> I want to mention that, uh, Jesus actually comes into this match. Very injured. He, we know Carlito's out with a hurt shoulder, but here's the deal on a house show in Johnson city. Jesus comes, he injures his groin and, and, and he's coming into this match with John Cena with a torn groin and two herniated discs in his back. And after this match, he's immediately going to have to have surgery. The surgery is successful, but by April of the following year. So what five months from now, he's out of here. Uh, he's no longer with the company. Uh, well, here's the, here's the deal. Let's clarify that positioning a little bit. First of all, Jesus was a very sound worker and we knew that we needed a very good worker, uh, to work with John. Concerning John had not been in the ring, uh, in, in weeks, it seemed like it movie stuff, all these things. And so when you get somebody to that level, a scene level or rock level, you always have to be cognizant of how you bring them back into the game. Who do they work with? You, you can't put them with somebody that they might not have the timing or the, you know, the, the, the symmetry, so to speak with Jesus was a very solid heel. Uh, work, didn't work heavy, uh, very sound and it wasn't going to hurt nobody. And he also didn't have to, he didn't work in a big hurry. Cena then had a good opponent in, 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 uh, in Jesus. Uh, but Jesus did have some, has some injuries, but the pace of the match could not have gone rapid fire because Cena was not ready to go rapid fire after his absence. So there's a reason for the booking. Uh, and then the other thing is that some of the injuries that Jesus had, uh, you, it's hard to say that they were not, uh, some of the makings of those injuries were not already in place. Now we knew that when we hired him, he's a veteran, worked a rugged style, hardcore style, a lot of stuff in, in uh, Puerto Rico, a lot of crazy bumps. So his body was not going to be intact, but he was getting by. And he was, ha- he was doing good work for us. So then when he got, uh, when he got at the end, we, we got him, he did his surgeries. And as far as I know, we fixed everything that needed to be fixed. 
And, uh, but at that point in time, then now that you know exactly what you have now, do we move forward with a guy that's been fixed a bunch or do we, uh, say, Hey, look, we've got you healthy. We've paid you while you're off. You know, we probably got a little walking away money. Uh, but you know, that's what we're going to do. So those decisions aren't easy, but you try to make them as best you can for all involved. We can't keep you, but we can let you leave healthy and, and fix a lot of ailments that you had when you got here. And that's what we did. Let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, the next scene. Oh, Jackie, oh, Jackie Gate is in the locker room with Charlie Haas and Jackie's complaining about Don Marie. Uh, of course, Charlie and, and Jackie are engaged at the time and Jackie takes off her engagement ring and Charlie puts it in his pocket. They share a pre-match kiss and he slaps her on the butt for good luck. And Don Marie gets the win over Jackie Gata in one minute and 55 seconds. It didn't get a rating. Um, afterwards, uh, Haas breaks up with Jackie saying she's a dead fish in bed. He <laughs> says, Don is great in bread in bed. And then he breaks up with Don saying that she's a slut. So he's not going to marry either one of them. Uh, the crowd popped really big for the, uh, slut line. The, yeah. When, when he, when he hit Don Marie with, uh, you're as hot as Atlanta, Georgia on the 4th of July. And he pulls the ring out. It looks like he's going to propose and the ass instead. Uh, Don, why are you such a slut and huge pop for this? Some of this stuff doesn't age. Well, uh, he leaves, <laughs> tells the girls to kiss and make up and the crowd is chanting <laughs> Charlie for him. So apparently Con- Conrad, be honest, what you're describing right now is fucking hideous. Yeah. I mean, we it's, it's it. bad television. Now there's the argument that some will make about the brand separation. Well, first of all, uh, you can always add more depth to I, any shows you got. I still believe that exclusivity on these various shows is really, really important because it gets you a chance to build individual stars and see who out of your cluster of top stars on Monday, Wednesday, and, and Friday for WWE for us on Wednesday night, uh, who's going to break loose. Who's going to distinguish themselves. All the measurables, the minute by minute ratings, the merchandise sales, all those things. Where are we on that? What does what our scorecard tell us? What do the analytics tell us? So, uh, but that's, that's kind of where we were with that deal. These, this, this act was not good. The, the, the talents in it were good folks and they worked their ass off. It was ill-conceived. Wasn't their fault that they got to hand a shitty piece of creative. Is eye rolling bullshit. And, uh, it's unfortunate, but that's what it was. It filled the card a little bit and it just was a buffer match. And that's not how the women, uh, are portrayed nowadays, which is shows you how far it's come. Next up, we see big show. He's walking backstage. He runs into joy and she says she wants to wish him good luck and gives him a kiss. And then. Uh, we have quite the match where big show beats Mark Jindrak and Luther Reigns and Kurt angle when show would pin Jindrak at 10 minutes and 52 seconds or 10 minutes and two seconds. Rather, uh, he uses an F five, which they're calling an F 500. They don't mention that it was Brock Lesnar's finisher and Wade would call it a bland match and just gave it one star. You got a lot of talent in there with Kurt angle. feels like maybe a missed opportunity. 
Mark Jindrak, Luther Reigns, Big Show. What an eclectic bunch here. What'd you think? Uh, too many cooks in the kitchen. There, uh, you got a, the the agent or producer, whatever, has got to uh, deal with four people, four egos, four feelings. You know, wah wah wah, and uh, sometimes that's challenging. Uh, so the match, once it left the the pencil to the paper, was not bound for glory. So uh, I just it, it it got it got some star power on the show, and it got, they got to earn a payday, and largely, folks, that's what you're going to find on a lot of uh, those pay-per-views is that you wonder why is this match here? Because they wanted to get a payday for that for that individual or that team or whatever it may be. It's it's it's, it's all. When they say it's not about the money, folks, remember what OJR says. When they say it's not about the money, it's all about the money. Let's talk about uh, the next match here. Uh, before we do, we should mention Funaki's interviewing himself backstage, and Spike says that's pathetic. Then uh, Funaki pins Spike to win the Cruiserweight title, nine minutes, 38 seconds. Wade would say it was two small men wrestling a heavyweight style that just didn't I don't work. get that. I, 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 got, I read that, and I don't get that, Conrad. There's, I don't know what that means. I think that, I think that Wade was looking for more fast pace, maybe more high spots, maybe more flashy moves. Either way, Funaki <laughs> scores a leverage pin out of nowhere, does a big celebration. The crowd goes mild star and a quarter. Mm. I don't know, man. Uh, Funaki and Spike Dudley for the cruiserweight title. Doesn't exactly feel like a pay-per-view match to me. It's uh well, it's, it's there to. It's the, uh, let me, uh, let me, let me up match. Yeah. That's our, let me up match on this card. You, and you give them a chance to go, go, uh, PP, uh, or grab a, you know, diet Coke or whatever, and get your ass back in your seat and time to watch the main event because hark of all shocks. That's what's following this match, the main event. So it's, it's a buffer match. It's all it is. And the great thing about this, no matter that Wade didn't like it. Uh, both guys are very sound. Neither guy are going out there and phone anything in and just half ass it. They're going to work to how they are produced no matter. And they, neither guy cares who goes over. They just want to have a good match because they're on a pay-per-view. They're going to make a little extra money tonight. So we've got confidence that Spike Dudley, who never failed to, to deliver, always did. And Funaki, same attitude, good guy. They're going to deliver what they're booked to deliver. So I, I, uh, I, I just don't, you got to, sometimes when you evaluate these cards, understand why the match was there and, 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 and what it meant to be there. It meant to let the audience down, but just don't take this service to hell and back. Keep it in the ring, do your shit. And both those guys could do that. And look, they're both loyal guys. They both were booked on the road a lot, Conrad. And booking a card like that, I would always look and say they could use a payday. And I think there's something to be said about that too. That's a good thing. No doubt about it. And we've got a good life talking about this main event. We should set the stage for our world title match here at survivor series. JBL is going to face Booker T for the championship. And before the match even began, JBL announces, if he loses, he's going to leave professional wrestling forever. Of course we know JBL wins the match and retains. 
but he does this after he hit Booker T with the title. On the November 18th episode of SmackDown, JBL, Guerrero, Booker T, and The Undertaker are all arguing about who should get the next shot at the world title. And the SmackDown GM, Teddy Long, announces that JBL is going to defend against everyone. Eddie Guerrero, Booker T, and The Undertaker at Armageddon. And they're our main event here. They get a lot of time, 25 minutes, 38 seconds. Of course, JBL gets the win. And uh, Wade would say solid four-way match, including some ladder spots. Taker kicked out after two Guerrero frog splashes. Heidenreich interfered late to hurt Taker's chances. And the end saw some dramatic near falls and signature spots, leading to JBL surprising Booker with a clothesline from hell. Three and a quarter stars. I love the clothesline from hell as a finish. And well, that's about where the compliments end. I, I was, uh, I don't know, disappointed to see Heidenreich. I don't have any good Heidenreich memories, but the match itself, not bad stuff, especially when you think about how challenging a four-way must be. What'd you think? I, I like the match, uh, because I understand Heidenreich's presence. Uh, you know, it was one of those deals where you get a big guy that's pretty athletic. Uh, that can take a few bumps in Heidenreich, new, he's fresh. Uh, we're just trying to find more heels. Uh, and so consequently, uh, that was the experiment there. It didn't never, it didn't pan out, but the logic behind it and giving him the best chance that we could create at the, at the moment to become recognized and to become, you know, a, a player, uh, was, uh, in this deal, marrying him would take her. Because we believe that even if if we got him in a situation with Taker, and Taker, if we could only do one with him, then we we would be able to get a significant one off with Heidenreich and Taker, and Taker goes over, of course. But you don't know. You know, maybe they click. Maybe Heidenreich gets over, connects to the audience. You never know until you try it. But it was a failed experiment, but for the right reasons. But in hindsight. It's easy to look at it and say, oh my God, Heidenreich, what hell, what are you thinking? But at the time we didn't have that uh, track record to, to, uh, to hedge our bets. After the pay-per-view, the feud between JBL undertaker Guerrero and Booker T slowly dies down. JBL goes on to feud with big show and Kurt angle over the title, which would end at no way out undertaker. Of course, as you can tell from this match is starting a feud with Heidenreich, which leads to a casket match at Royal rumble. Of course, undertaker wins that one. John Cena would win a tournament at no way out to challenge JBL for the title at WrestleMania. And of course, Cena would go on to win the title from JBL at WrestleMania. Um, what'd you think? First time watching this pay-per-view in a long time. Give me a, a number here, a scale of one to 10. What say you probably about a six, uh, uh there are things about, I really enjoyed, uh, seriously. I did enjoy the open that Jim Johnson song. That, uh, it was a spinoff or a, you know, a, a, a Jim Morrison sound and feel. I thought it was pretty incredible. Uh, the, uh, Vincent, the, uh, Royal rumble promo was really cool. I did like the, uh, fate, the four way better than you did Conrad, uh, because I was behind the scenes. I was there when the Heidenreich experiment was, was ongoing. So I know why it was done and there were skeptics. There's always skeptics. Uh, people hedge their bets uh, on on ideas and talent uh, evolution. So there's always some skeptics there in, inside the the confines of uh, 
uh, over there on uh, in, in Stanford. So, you know, it's what it was. I just, uh, but I thought it was okay. I, I, I liked the finish. I liked the fact they had a finish and how they orchestrated the finish. I thought was very well done. It, the key thing, you don't want to harm taker and they didn't. And, uh, you got a clean win for JVL, which they needed and they got it. And of course, then you got, uh, Wilker T doing the honors like the pro that he is. Well, and we're going to do the honors next week. We are so honored to have your follow here on the show. If you haven't already follow us on social media at JR grilling, pick up a ticket and come see me and Jim and Tony Schiavone, February 5th in Huntsville, Alabama tickets are on sale right now at supershowlive.com. and hit the subscribe button. Tell a friend all about Jim Ross's new podcast here. Grilling JR. We covered something from 2004 this week, next week. It's all about TLC 2009. We haven't covered a show, uh, that, uh, that late recently, uh, but 2009, the 10 year anniversary, this will be an interesting show. It went down in San Antonio, Texas. Lots of folks there over 15,000 in attendance. The main event is Degeneration X, which is Shawn Michaels and triple H taking on Jarrah show, big show and Chris Jericho and a TLC match. We've got Randy Orton and Kofi Kingston. We got Batista and the undertaker. We got Seamus and John Cena, Michelle McCool and Mickey James, Drew McIntyre and John Morrison, Christian and Shelton Benjamin. This doesn't read like 10 years ago. This reads like last Wednesday. Uh, I'm <laughs> yeah. excited to well, cover this one next week here with you. Yeah, it'd be fun, man. Hey, uh, folks, I, I, some of you seen on social media, uh, the many of you follow me at on Twitter at J R S B B Q, which I appreciate. And of course, Conrad is, Hey, Hey, it's me no hey hey, hey it's, it's conrad, conrad. Yeah, you got it yeah hey hey it's conrad on twitter okay so we got that done so i got this new website oh yeah but, let's talk about that jrsbbq.com yeah and, and right and now here, you've got a free autograph with all orders through christmas right yeah it's a thank you card that I, I signed a ton of thank you cards so it's all hot signatures as they say it's not they're not facsimiles uh but we have a website as conrad mentioned thank you uh, jrsbbq.com. It's real simple. Jrsbbq.com, and we got a. I, I got formed a little business with a friend of mine, and he and his wife are helping me. Uh, Stephen Link and his wife, lovely wife, are uh, doing the order fulfillment. Uh, they're hell bent on getting them. They, when you send an order in, the day they get it, they try to ship it out that day. But if not, it'll be the next day. So the orders are promptly shipped. And you can buy our sauces, the chipotle ketchup, which is a good steak sauce, by the way, uh, the jalapeno honey mustard. I had a very famous person. I, I, I will not reveal at this point in time, maybe someday if I get mad at a very famous person, ordered my mustard the other day. And I want to thank them. So, uh, <laughs> this is a good story too. I'll tell you off the air Conrad. It's good shit. I have, there's jerky on there too. And you've got, yeah. you know, all purpose seasoning, check it out. JRSBBQ.com. And don't forget order before Christmas. And you also get that autograph card. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate your business. Look, somebody says all JR wants to do nowadays is sell barbecue sauce. I get that on the, on the field of blasphemy on for my work on the air. And here's the deal guys. Uh, the original barbecue sauce was the, the basics basics of that was my mother's barbecue sauce she made on the stovetop in our home when I was a kid. Uh, and then Jan took a big interest in that 
and there then became the derivative of from that of the hot barbecue, then the chipotle ketchup, which is a, which is amazing, and then uh, the jalapeno honey mustard. Got a little personality to it. It's got one gram of sugar. Uh, it's just amazing stuff. How it's a high grade honey mustard uh, with some jalapeno mash. And so for my mom and my wife who are no longer with me, I want to do something to uh, carry on their legacy. I want my children to understand why I'm doing it. I want them to learn from my experiences. So this is how we're doing it. It's a little mom and pop operation, but we appreciate your, your checking us out. And, and I think some of our stuff makes great Christmas gifts. So and holiday gifts. So that's the story of that Conrad. I'm not just trying to sell uh, sauce so I can buy another Escalade. I got the money to buy another Escalade. I want to do something with this money. That's going to be uh, meaningful to my family as time moves forward. And that's our goal. So, and by the way, uh, we had a great crowd in Garland, uh, and wonderful. We're going to be in Corpus Christi this coming Wednesday night. And it's our last TV show of the year because the next week is Christmas. And then we come back on new year's night, uh, on uh, TNT. So Corpus Christi on TV, uh, seven o'clock central, uh, eight o'clock Eastern and Pacific, uh, and from Corpus tickets are still available. I got to believe that knowing this company as I do and Conrad, as you do, they're not going to let us leave the last show of the year with a whimper. No, it'll be, it'll be balls to the wall. Wouldn't you think? I suspect lots of fireworks and, uh, don't forget to catch Jim every single Wednesday on TNT, AEW dynamite and tune in next week for TLC 2009. If you haven't already check out jimrossshirts.com. There's a phenomenal new shirt over there. Uh, inspired by the old dare shirt. Instead of dare though, it says C A K E. And underneath it says, let's take a hit of chocolate cake. Check it out. JimRawShirts.com. <laughs> and don't forget jrsbbq.com. We appreciate you listening. Hit that subscribe button, tell a friend, and don't miss us next week and every week right here on the mighty Westwood one. Of course, it's grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. Hey everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of fantasy NBA today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.